Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Postcards from a Dying World. I'm your guest host, Desmond Reddick from the Dread Media Podcast. And uh, our very special guest today is the regular host of Postcards from a Dying World, podcaster, writer, friend of mine, David Agronoff. Welcome hey, to your own podcast. I know. Well, see, <laughs> this is the idea is we're going to turn it around and because like I want the chance to talk about my work too sometimes, but um, <laughs> sure, sure. I was just trying to figure out something to do for the 50th. So I don't know. I thought this would be fun. So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're one of the people with perhaps Larry from Dickheads that most knows my or best knows my work. So, wow. Okay. Well. Thank you. I mean, I, I just pulled a couple things out. And since we are on camera, I did we meet each other on the Rue Morgue message boards? I believe that is the first uh, interactions was the Rue Morgue message board. But, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But the first time I really like kind of knew you were actually a person, not separate from <laughs> like a screen avatar or whatever was was to meet you in in person for the um for the international right screens from a dying world book tour which right. uh was international because i did dark horse books in victoria <laughs> yeah yeah and it counts the, <laughs> and the whole audience is on the zoom call right now yeah <laughs> so um because you were pretty much the only person that right. showed up well, besides can- robert Carrie's in the wife. background somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So this is a bookstore in Victoria, BC, run by uh, the late great Robert Garfat, yeah. who um, wanted to host me for this event, and because I'd been in there a couple times shopping, because I'd lived across the water in um, Port Angeles for 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 the weird Twilight Zone year that I was there. <laughs> Robert invited me to do that and so i did and the one person who showed up was you so that was cool <laughs> that's uh, right it was a two and a half hour drive there and then two and a half hours drive back but um i had uh, i had a young i had a young baby at that point and i was like let me get out of the house for a day <laughs> that sounds that it, well hey it works out and you know it's one of those valuable lessons writers could learn is that um probably two years before that maybe two maybe three years earlier I went to a Clive Barker signing at a mall in Orange County, mm. uh, California for Abarat book two. And I, on the drive up, I expected that we were going to have a, a line through the mall. Like, you know, there was going to be tons of people. We get five seconds with Clive and I showed up and there was literally four of us there. Oh my God. And Clive was late, but when he got there, <laughs> He treated all four of us like royalty and was cool. Not upset. <laughs> there were only four people there, but just very excited and um, still have the poster signed hanging on my wall here from that. Very event, cool. So. Very cool. Well, I think the first example of something that you wrote 
that I read has to come from. The, oh yeah, the gutter. The limits. gutter limits. Yeah. <laughs> now that is going deep. That's a deep cut. That's like that um, is, yeah. That's a demo. <laughs> yeah. Which which had birth on the uh, Rue Morgue board as well because right that was it yeah 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 and the gutter limits the idea was it was a weird it was a weird kind of bizarre thing um, is that uh, there was a couple of us who were friends who wrote under the name Booger Murphy I don't know really know where that came from Carrie might be able to comment on that too because she was <laughs> one of the four that made up Booger right? Murphy right so the idea was. I was writing a lot of flash fiction at the time and I had a friend, Paul Stewart, who was, you know, we were both kind of challenging each other with a little bit of um, flash fiction. And then my wife, Carrie, like she's a a really good writer too. And then the fourth person was Gabriel Alanis, who co-edited the Vault of Punk Horror with me, who I met through the Rue Morgue board and I still never met Oh, (laughs) yeah. Still never met Gabriel as an actual like human being. We talked a lot on the phone, of course. Um, But just I kind of threw it out there like, hey, why don't we all collaborate on a flash fiction collection? So all four writers, Gabriel, Paul, Carrie and myself um, contributed flash fiction pieces under this like joke (laughs) pen name of. of booger murphy and i don't remember how uh booger came to be but uh it is kind of an early version of uh, like the kind of thing that i did with punk art ghost story which making up fake artists but we it's funny because there's a biography of booger murphy inside the gutter limits um each of us contributed a piece of the biography without consulting the others (laughs) but anyways uh the whole biography we didn't consult with each other so it kind of contradicts each other and it's just kind of fun and <laughs> so each of us i think wrote four or five stories um in the gutter limits yeah that's, that sounds that's about right yeah yeah that's a very rare thing but we do have the flyer for the gutter limits release party hanging on our fridge right now. oh nice nice um because we did we did do a release party fourth hat at there was an old vegan restaurant in san diego called kung food and we they and it's still around under a different name but that building still has a vegan two vegan restaurants in it actually now two different vegan restaurants from then but on the patio we did like a release party and actually point of trivia is uh author cody goodfellow also read um a story at the gutter limits release party and he read wasted on the young which um, my co-writer and fellow podcast host, Anthony Trevino, it's his favorite Cody Goodfellow story. Huh, cool. But it was before we knew Anthony. And uh, that story of Cody's, Wasted on the Young, was published in Cemetery Dance eventually. And eventually became it was in the, his collection, Strategies Against Nature. I'm going to look right here on my shelf. Strategies Against Nature, yes. Cool. As uh, the name of Cody's collection, but that story wasted on the Young's first introduction was at at the Gutter Limits release party. So cool, very cool. So yeah, so you already mentioned it. I've also got this the uh, chapbook version of Screams from a Dying World, which I guess maybe I got that from you at the 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. At uh, uh, the book tour. So, yeah. Yeah. At the time, our friend Paul Stewart, who who was one of the Booger Murphy uh, partners, had had the idea that he, for a while, he wanted to do, he wanted to print these books and chat books. He was having fun doing them. But then I think once he realized how much work it actually was, I don't think he wanted to keep doing it. But um, but actually, Paul did a lot of the um, the work with that and kind of put that together for me. And that was really the first. And, and um, a lot of that was just him being a good friend and like helping me do something that like because I didn't know how to I didn't know how to publish anything at that point. Right. And really the the six story version of screens from a dying world so now there's three versions there's the chat book version oh there's the afterbirth version and then there's a grand mall oh, version right right yeah and i forgot about the after afterbirth version yeah there's three versions of screams but but the chat book version was basically i created that to as the first sampler of my writing the first serious attempt at trying to put out prose and was to try and find a publisher for it. And um, that ended up in Gina Rinaldi's hands and Gina and Karen at Afterbirth oh. then offer, asked me if I wanted to do a full collection because I told him I had twice that many stories. Um, and the majority of those stories for Screams were written in the last year we were in San Diego and then the weird year we lived in uh, Port Angeles, Washington. So it would have been 2004 through 2006. Most of those stories were written. And then you eventually moved to like the middle point. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, we moved to, we moved not to quite the middle, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wanted see the whole reason we were in Port Angeles is we wanted to move to Canada, but Canada said, fuck no. So, um, <laughs> We were one of the people that when Bush got reelected the second time that said, like, that's it. We're out of here. We tried. Yeah. And partially because we, we loved Victoria. Great city. Br- British Columbia and thought it would be a really neat place to live. And the idea of living on an island that most people don't even realize exists <laughs> off the coast of Western Canada, which is funny because it's a big city. Right. But, right. you know, living on that island. That a lot of people don't realize that that island even exists. Well, so. whenever, whenever I, you know, where, you know, where do you live? I say, well, I live in Port Alberni on Vancouver Island. And they're like, oh, by Vancouver. I'm like, no, Vancouver's hours away. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it will, it will take, all. it will take me three hours to get to Vancouver. And that includes a two hour and 20 minute boat ride. But exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that year in Port Angeles is part of the story too because a lot of the the stories of screams were kind of inspired by living in port angeles if people don't know it's it's a little town right across the water from victoria and it's definitely the smallest town i've lived in as as an adult uh it's surrounded by beautiful nature there's yeah well it's it's where it's where they film most of the twilight movies yeah, and they take place a little bit further uh, west, even. But but again, it's like most people don't realize that there is a, a Washington that's west, further west than Seattle, let alone hours of it. Right, right. They think Seattle is the coast, just if they've never been to the, to the area. Yeah. Even I think people who, I think some people in Seattle don't realize how much <laughs> of the state 
there is um, west of there. But anyways, uh, living out there by the forest and doing a lot of hiking and stuff like that kind of inspired. I mean, I was already an animal rights and environmentalist, but the I'm a plot and structure guy, as you know, um, and the listeners will know at this point because I talk about plot and structure all the time yeah. too. Yeah. But um, even with short story collections, even with my two short story collections, I thought of them uh, structured as a whole book. And so I kind of, from the beginning, when I started thinking about putting together a short story collection, I always had the idea or the concept that it was going to have a theme or something kind of running through it. Animal rights and environmentalism, uh, obviously one of the most important things to me in the world, those two things. And so it just made sense to make the first collection that, and I don't know where the, the name, and this obviously inspires, you know, postcards from a dying world. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, the, the name of this podcast, but the inspiration for the title screams from a dying world is taken from one of my favorite militant vegan death metal bands, which is uh, a nineties classic band from North Carolina day of suffering. Oh, right. And day of cool. suffering there. I, didn't, I never book. put that together. I never put that together. Yeah. <laughs> and day of suffering. They actually, uh, those guys stayed with me in Syracuse when they recorded that record. One and only full length record, Eternal Jihad is one of my all time favorite records. And there's a song on that record called Visualize Industrial Collapse, which has uh, admittedly a riff lift from uh, Carcass in that song. But, you know, hey. Um, (laughs) But uh, Visualize Industrial Collapse has this insanely heavy chorus. The the actual lyrics of the chorus are this dying world will hear our scream. That's and my, the day of suffering shirt that I still have, that's almost shattered, you know, shredded. (laughs) So old says on the back, um, this dying world will hear our scream and was always one of my favorite lyrics of anything ever. And so screams from a dying world is, um, is obviously an homage, a tribute to, uh, day of suffering and if you never heard that band and if you like it's the the first like vegan hard because you know earth crisis was was fusing metal and hardcore before that but those guys were thrash metal guys and you know crossover <laughs> guys and the day of suffering guys like straight up listen to morbid angel and right and, and they were the first band to like straight up combine death metal with hardcore and breakdowns and they're amazing in fact there's a band now still running that covered them who's huge in the metal scene heaven shall burn oh right uh, yeah and heaven shall burn is basically what day of suffering could have become if they had stayed together and if there's any band that's that has taken their sound and like built off of it and made something better and and it's it's funny because um Carrie from uh, the singer from Day of Suffering, like doesn't like a lot of metal these days. He's kind of over it, but like one of the few bands that, that he's like really impressed by, he's like, Whoa, heaven shall burn. <laughs> They're great. Cool. <laughs> nice. And, um, but yeah, Day of Suffering, I I'm, I'm getting tangential here, but they were, they were where I got the title screens from a dying world. from. Excellent. Well, and, and that's uh, like, I think when I first read your stuff, you know, through, you know, through the gutter limits and of course screams from a dying world. Um, I was like, yeah, this guy's mixing 
you know, horror or weird fiction with punk rock. And I'm like, well, this is, you know, two great tastes that go great together, you know? And I was sort of coming back into horror fiction at the time. I, I went to university and, you know, I didn't read, read any horror in that period. I think I, I revisited books of blood, which I always do. And then I think the only other horror. Yeah, absolutely. And then the only other horror I think I touched in those four and a half years was uh, like gothic horror that I I managed to mix into getting into a class. You know, I'm sorry, I read Frankenstein and the uh, strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the curious case of the no, that's Jekyll and Hyde. Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which I still think is one of the most underrated uh, gothic horror novels. But maybe it's because I was hungering for it greatly uh, and then sort of got back into it when I lived in Scotland. And then then when I came back to Canada, I dove head first. And uh, you're one of the first guys that I, you know, that I hadn't read before that I started reading again. So you and Keen, a little bit of Lee. Ketchum. Well, I've read Ketchum before, but you know, and, and then Gonzalez. I, I do like Keen's work, but I like a little Ketchum, but like I'm not an Ed Lee fan. So it's funny because it's probably a very different vibe. You yeah. Know, yeah. Well, I'm, I like a lot. Voices. I like a lot of shit. Some of Lee's stuff turns me off. It's a little too, you know, um, it's, it, <laughs> yeah. A little yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's a, a nice guy, but I just, I, I can't, yeah. I can't yes. take Sometimes it's too much, but uh, yeah, a little too much for me, even. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, but uh, yeah, I sort of got a sprinkling of everything. You know, JF Gonzalez, who I, I don't know, I didn't think anyone really knew who he was. Again, I was just sort of this in this little tiny bubble, mm-hmm. and then you know, and then the Rumorg message boards where I actually you know met you and got to read your stuff and everything. And uh, I'll tell you what I do think Ed Lee does really well is I do like his Lovecraftian stuff. I, I was gonna I say that. <laughs> afraid afraid to get off into a tangent, but yeah, yeah. his love Lovecraftian erotica is great. Um I do like his sequel to Shadow Over Innsmouth, I think is is really great. Yeah. So I good stuff. I'm not anti Edley, I just I uh that one um or that his Lovecraftian stuff I I was pretty impressed with. Yeah. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, and I guess that sort of leads into, I, so I guess like the first actual book with your name published on the cover was The Collected Screams from a Dying World. Yeah, that was my first like real book was the Afterbirth edition of Screams from a Dying World. And, you know, I'm still pretty proud of that collection. It's There's, great. I think most of it holds up pretty well. I think, yeah, I mean, obviously I think I'm a better writer you know, these days than, of course, than then, but I, I think that there are stories in there that hold up some hold up better than others. And then at some, I think you can see ideas I was trying to, to work my way towards, but uh, in some ways there's a, um, there's a, a kind of unknowing passion like that. I didn't had been beaten down by the process of doing a lot of this yet. So <laughs> in some ways, uh, you know, there's that. And I do really like when I said that I put together a collection with with ideas, I wanted to do the environmental and animal rights themes. So some of the stories are more connected to the theme than others. Some are very tangential. There's one or two stories that don't connect to the environmentalism at all. 
Um, but those were just at the time they, they were the stories that I had. Now, yeah. when I did uh, the later collection that I did, I was very strict about s- sticking to the formula and everything fits the theme. But with Screams, for example, there's a story normal that is just about punk rock. Right. And normal <clears throat> doesn't have anything environmental involved in it. And that was really more just uh, just a story. And then some of the connections like uh, Fifth Noble Truth, for example, is a story about Buddhism technology, which um, which I admit I wrote to submit to the there was a religious horror anthology. <laughs> they turned me down because they said my story wasn't horrific enough, which is fine. Right. But then I had this story and I ended up submitting uh, the Fifth Noble Truth uh, to Rudy Rutger's uh, online magazine. And if you're not familiar with Rudy Rutger, uh, Rudy Rutger is one of the original cyberpunk authors and a Philip K. Dick Award winner. But he's more famous as a mathematician than he is as a science fiction author, which is crazy because he's an amazing science fiction writer. He was doing this online zine for a while called Flurb because he was having trouble selling some of his weirder stories that because uh, he's a very weird sci-fi writer great great sci-fi writer but very weird and he was having trouble himself publishing so he just started making this online magazine and was basically just publishing friends and people who were you know john shirley put, uh, has a lot of stories on flurb and just on a whim i was like well i'm gonna submit this to Rudy Rudger and Flurb and just see how it goes. And um, it was a really huge validation for me that Rudy bought uh, Fifth Noble Truth. And it was originally published on Flurb, which, you know, it's an online zine, whatever, but getting the seal of approval from a, from Rudy Rudger was a huge deal because yeah. um, I read uh, his software books in like the nineties, which is one of the weirdest robot. It's a quadrilogy. Cause there's four books. And uh, it starts with software and then there's wetware and um, a bunch of other wares. Anyway, <laughs> um, but those books are just insanely weird. And like one of the first like really like weird, super bizarro sci-fi things I had ever read. So so when, when Rudy bought Fifth Noble Truth, it was a big deal for me. So very cool. He's somebody I got to I got to have on this podcast or or dickheads because uh, probably dickheads. But yeah, um, but Rudy's awesome and uh i highly suggest he did an afterlife book called jim and the flims which is um uh really crazy good and uh so i recommend anybody read his work here i go i i see <laughs> in my nature to promote other people's work i was just gonna say let's get back to you <laughs> yeah i know i know it's just in my nature and see that was the idea does doing this is that it for one okay so next i want you to clarify something for me i know we've talked about this but it was also i don't know probably a month ago at this point maybe even longer so your next published work was your first published novel but not the first novel that you wrote that got published so vegan the vegan revolution with zombies was the first published novel correct the Vegan Revolution with Zombies was the first published novel. The first completed novel was Hunting the Moon Tribe. Right. 
Right. Okay. And, and Moon Tribe was written during that same time when I was living uh, in Port Angeles. And actually I had like, I had a dream writer's job actually when we lived there, which was that I was doing elder care and I was basically, I'd show up on Friday to relieve the person that was working there during the week. And I would literally show up at 5.30 PM on Friday and I would stay at this guy's house and just make sure he took his meds basically. Right. (laughs) And I would leave Monday morning at 7 a.m. Right. And so I worked, I did all my work hours for the week on the weekend. And so five days a week, I was <laughs> at home just riding Hunting the Moon Tribe. And the thing is, is Moon Tribe started life. And I just posted this on Instagram because my wife Carrie found um, the very first thing I took seriously writing was I tried screenwriting first. And the very first piece of writing that I like did ass plus chair equals writing the, the, the Oliver Stone saying the first piece of writing that I sat down and did was a screenplay for hunting the moon tribe and hunting the moon tribe was an idea for a novel that I had had kicking in my head since 1994. Well, well we met in 2006. Yes. And, and we, we were talking about that book then. Yeah. Because that's when I was writing it. I was, I was like, I was asked deep in that novel um, when, when we, when we first met in 2006. And so I probably had been thinking about moon tribe for 11 years at that point. And so I don't know if you want to get into moon tribe now or come back to it in the publishing order but um while we're talking about it now let's do it yeah so hunting the moon tribe the original inspiration for hunting the moon tribe was you know like everybody else i wanted to do a vampire novel i you know as a horror guy i had wanted to be a writer basically my whole life but because of my learning disability which i I have severe dyslexia dysgraphia too but um i have ton of learning disabilities i was terrified of grammar i was terrified in in the beginning and i still don't have the best grammar in the world as anyone who reads my facebook knows but uh i I didn't want to take writing seriously for a long time because even though i had ideas constantly i was afraid to basically put myself out there And if you look, I did zines at the time, like environmental and animal rights zines. And a lot of times I would just write everything in all caps, like I was screaming Um, (laughs) because, and then I did a few zines where I had friends that like basically helped me edit them. And so I did a zine for several years called voice box. And then I had a zine called defense rescue and survival, which was a weird, like environmental militant animal rights zine and then i did various other like propaganda and just you know and i say propaganda as a positive because i i think that word has been made negative (laughs) of course of course where i actually think that propaganda is a good thing i i well-intentioned propaganda but i was that's what i was working on but during that time i had this idea for a vampire novel and what i always saw was i thought well wouldn't it be cool if the vampires traveled in a circus 
as how they hid for years, for decades, that they would travel and, and feast on people and that the circus is how they would hide. Yeah. And I always wanted to do Chinese vampires because when I was growing up, my introduction to horror going all the way back, um, and this is true of many people from my home state of Indiana, but everything started with, in Indiana, we had a horror host named Sammy Terry. <laughs> and Sammy was, Sammy, and it would say in parentheses, ghoul under his name uh, <laughs> when they would introduce him. And he like rose out of a coffin in green face paint and talked to a spider on a string. And every Friday night at 1130, he would introduce like hammer horror movies. And so growing up, I, you know, through Sammy Terry, I saw, well, actually I saw Phantasm on there was the coolest movie they showed on Sammy Terry. Um, And you could actually on YouTube watch Sammy do his introduction to Phantasm, which is super weird because (laughs) in Indianapolis was hosting the Pan Am games at the same time that they had Phantasm on. So he makes these weird references to the Pan Am games. It's very strange. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but Night of the Living Dead, Twins of Evil, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, The Horror of Dracula, all these movies. I Vampire Circus. Yeah. yeah, Well, (laughs) I'm sure I don't remember that one specifically. I remember Dracula's dog. Um, Fuck, I forgot about that movie. (laughs) There's there's a lot that I saw on Sammy Terry. But the the secret of how Honey the Moon Tribe happened was that. A lot of times on Friday nights at 1130, I'd been to school that day and I would be admittedly tired. So a lot of times when Sammy Terry would start, and I had tons of Sammy Terry episodes on Betamax, is I would turn the VCR on right as Sammy Terry was starting. And if I fell asleep and just in the morning, I'd finish whatever on Saturday morning, I'd finish whatever you know, I fell asleep on, but right. after Sammy Terry at one thirty on channel four in Indianapolis, every Friday, Saturday morning at one thirty in the morning was black belt theater and black belt theater. So I would have all these double features that would be twins of evil and Chinese super ninjas right, or right. Dracula's dog and the five deadly venoms or, I just, I had all these. And so I did grow up watching all these crazy dubbed Kung Fu movies because, and like everybody, like every kid growing up in the eighties, I loved ninjas. So the first time I saw Chinese super ninjas, I was like, this is fucking awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's rad. (laughs) AKA five element ninjas. Don't at me nerds. I know that the actual (laughs) title is five element ninjas, but when it was on black belt theater, it was called Chinese super ninjas. So anyways, yes. And my DVD over there is five element ninjas, but whatever, (laughs) which is still to this day, one of my favorite Chopsaki movies love and fandom for kung fu movies kind of came out of that too because i'd have all these crazy double features and so hunting the moon tribe was always meant to be combining those double features in one thing and that influence and that i got a great piece of writing advice from uh, cody goodfellow um the year because i was the year before we left before i wrote moon tribe when i was like gearing up to write my first serious take in a novel um, we were doing these what we called prose potlucks in San Diego the year before we left San Diego. 
And it was Ryan C. Thomas, Cody Goodfellow, my buddy Paul, who was one of the Booger Murphy writers. Right. Yeah. And we would uh, kind of take turns going to each other's houses and we would read stories to each other and critique stories. In fact, one of the stories in um, Screams, uh, the the one about um, the story Shoe about uh, solitary confinement. Right. Yeah, that was a story that I first read at one of those pros potlucks, for example. Cool. And uh, I was talking to Cody because I had this I had this idea for a horror novel that I still haven't written called um, War Beast that's about the Vietnam War. I literally, I've got a shelf of Vietnam books because I, I've spent 20 years researching and I still haven't written it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I was thinking about writing War Beast first because I was, in my mind, it was like the best idea I had. And Cody said to me, well, you know, you'll never do enough research for that book. Right. You'll never feel like you've done enough research. And he knew that I had written a screenplay of Hunting the Moon Tribe. And he said, you know that story really, really well. You could write that in your sleep. You should write that as your first novel. And so I took Cody's advice and I wrote Hunting the Moon Tribe as my first novel. Because my first serious attempt at writing, I I got tan tangented out here, but my first <laughs> serious attempt was at writing anything was a screenplay of Moon Tribe in 2001, end of 2001, early 2002. I wrote a, a, several drafts of a screenplay of Hunting the Moon Tribe, which is a very stripped down version of it because I I didn't want to make the effects budget too insane. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And the idea was is that I was riding off the wave of because you remember two thousand one, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, Crouching Tiger. <laughs> well, I already got ahead of it. There's, crouching Tiger, yeah. and Dragon was, yeah. was one of the biggest blockbusters of the last couple of years. Right. And so my idea was to pitch it as Crouching. This is like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dracula. Right. Yeah. Perfect. That the, Perfect. That was, that was the pitch. It placed in a few, it placed in a few, it was a finalist in a screenwriting con competition put on by Dimension Films. Right. I think you posted this uh, yesterday, yesterday on, yeah, yeah. yeah that was yeah. the first time I submitted any writing anywhere. And it was wow. a finalist out wow. of 600 entries and it was industry professionals judging it. So that's when I was like, you know, fuck, I got to take this seriously and I got, I got to learn how to do this. Carrie edited the screenplay for me um, and we, Carrie and I learned how to write screenplays by, we put a copy of Shawshank Redemption. Okay. The yeah. screenplay Shawshank Redemption. And I became religious about reading creative screenwriting and script magazine every month, which are now defunct magazines. But um, I never went to film school for screenwriting or anything like that. Um, but I, kept those magazines i still have them um but i basically kept them in the bathroom <laughs> and um <laughs> you know they were my toilet reads for a long time and and, and <laughs> i read a lot of the interviews with my favorite writers back to back you know cover to cover uh creative screenwriting had a bunch of back issues and they had like a special horror issue they had a john carpenter tribute issue cool all these things and i went back and i bought all, i i ordered them all the back issues, all of it. And I became uh, almost to the point where I can still, I can, I still quote 
from those interviews all the time. Like I just quoted Scott Frank from one of those interviews. Uh, for example, one of the quotes I, that asked plus chair equals writing Oliver Stone came from right. an interview in creative screenwriting. And one that I always quote, Jonathan Demi, who directed uh, Silence of the Lambs, he, he said, um, you can confuse me for 15 minutes, but don't bore me for 15 seconds, for example. Fair, yeah. There's a p- piece of writing advice that I got from a creative screenwriting interview that I still to this day quote regularly and all the time. So <laughs> I um, love to, I love to be confused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck with my head, please. <laughs> right. And so the original, the very first moon tribe is very important to me because it was the first screenplay. It was the first, and I went on to write four or five screenplays that never turned into anything that, um, <laughs> for better or for worse, some are better than others. A couple I tried to turn into novels, but Moon Tribe is, Moon Tribe I turned into a novel and then um, a trunk novel that I have, Demons of Winter, started as a screenplay and then became a a novel that uh, never got published that, yeah, is still out there. But, and then uh, I have a hilariously bad attempt at a, a, a drama. I tried to write basically what was Brokeback Mountain in Vietnam. I wrote a- Huh a gay love story in, in um, Vietnam called don't tell that's that is to this day. I mean, I, I had well, I had good intentions, but <laughs> I, I, I would never read that again. <laughs> it was so bad. I had good intentions. Right. <laughs> um, but basically I spent four or five, I spent the first couple of years writing, trying to be a screenwriter, entering lots of contests. And Moon Tribe did become a quarter finalist in the Nickel, which is the screenwriting contest put on by the Oscars. And being a quarter finalist is like yeah. how Andrew Walker Card got discovered with um, his screenplay for Seven, right? Moon Tribe did take a lot of meetings. It was just 10 years ahead of, ahead of its time. And I did like get interest from production companies, including the producers of a movie called Soccer Dog, which is a long running joke in this house. Because, <laughs> um, you know, if somebody's interested in film rights to a book, uh, you know, the question is, is this another soccer dog? Uh, <laughs> you know, are we going down that again? Oh um, man. That, that trend of sport, sporty animals is, uh, bizarre i'm in the background of air bud 2 by the way that's my claim to fame oh wow yeah living <laughs> in bc yeah yeah they... filming the movies up there yeah so the soccer talk thing was <laughs> was funny and then i had like one guy who had produced a documentary who wrote me into writing a screenplay for him and never paid me a horror script that i had a chance to publish as a novel but he wouldn't release the screenplay to me and never made it for example. And so I have some kind of things that came out of moon tribe placing in the contest, but it didn't really turn into anything. And what's funny is when I say I was 10 years ahead of time is that I was at a conference in 2014. So 10 years after that, and everything in Hollywood was what can you cross market with China? You know, right. like China's the biggest film market in the world and like all your movies have to appeal to China. And I was thinking to myself, well, shit, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. And I still tried a little bit to, to get the book out in front of people. But, um, but I think at the time when every time I would have a production company write me and say, can you send the script is a lot of times they'd say like the script's great. We love it, but it's an all Chinese cast with a giant effects budget. And they just couldn't get their head around it. And it's like, hello, blockbuster movie, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, just two yeah. years ago. Yeah. Challenge Soccer, Kung Fu Hustle. Just House, House of Flying Daggers. Yeah. Right, like the right title there. Yeah. They're like Chinese cinema was big in the West for a good several years there. Big. Yeah. But the, but the thing is, is that, and my thought when I tried to turn it into a novel was, well, one, I wanted to preserve the story two cody's advice three well and look i did end up doing a ton of research for hunting the moon tribe yeah um there's a lot of chinese folklore you know and it's funny because a couple authors have done chinese vampires recently in really good ways uh molly tanzer and her um brain farting the name of her book um vermilion vermilion she has um uh, Chinese vampires and then uh, Lisa Morton did Chinese vampires in uh, Netherworld I think so um, there's a little difference between the Chinese vampires in the movies and mine mine are a little bit more traditional they act more traditional like European vampires than Chinese vampires like hop and do weird things hop. yeah I was, yeah. I was gonna say yeah so I, j- I just couldn't bring myself to do hopping vampires um, although Molly does in Vermilion, and um, okay, and it's a great book. Uh, Vermilion is great; it's my favorite of Molly's books. But uh, but but I, I don't know. So there was a lot of research, and I greatly expanded the fantasy of it um, in the novel. So there's a lot more. It's a lot more expansive story, but and I did. I yeah. you know, hey, I put a, a white kid uh, in the lead. Um, well, <laughs> right? I, I was just going to so. say that. Cause I, like I've, I've very recently reread hunting the moon tribe and it is, you know, the POV character is this young white kid from, you know, San Diego. And orange so County. there's, or sorry, orange County. Yeah. And there's, there's through line there for any, you know, <laughs> any, well, any movie, that. you know, p- put a, put a teenage white guy as the lead and chances <laughs> are the movie's going to go ahead. And he just happens to be, you know, uh, uh, immersed in, uh, yeah. well, the, I was going to say in Chinese culture, but mostly the Kung Fu. Yeah. And I only did him that way because I wanted a fish out of water character anyway. Right. So, so that's the only I, reason why there's, you know, I didn't care. I mean, I was all for an all Chinese cast. And in fact, when I wrote the thing, I obviously, as a Kung Fu movie nerd, I had every role cast at the time. Now, right, right all right. that casting's out of date these days. But, <laughs> um, but like the Vampire Master, like the the, the younger and older, I mean, like I, of course, I cast it all. So. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's very rich, uh, steeped in mythology. The uh, uh, the mission to the temple. I'm I'm not going to remember names of anything. The the big. I wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> you the read big, it more recently than I have. The uh, yeah the the fight with the dragon. It's just uh, it's fantastic, and it's it it does have the feel, you know, like uh, it does have the feel of 
Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I'm saying I'm saying that because that's a hugely popular one, but it is, you know, the the sort of wuxia stuff and, and jumping up into the sky and and landing on the roof of a building to have a conversation kind of stuff. It's all it's very it's very, it's very kung wuxia. fu movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'm a huge wuxia movie fan, and at the time, that was the height of my wuxia love. So um, my I still have a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of Wuxia films, but nothing compared to like at that time, um, I was very, very, very steeped in it. And uh, so I'd say my knowledge then was probably even more so. And that comes down to, and it's funny too, because I like, I like connecting these things because I think these things are fun to know about other artists. So this might be interesting, but at the time in San Diego, right before we left, the way to get Wuxia movies um, and sometimes you could get them imports before they came out in America. Like we had shell and soccer. Um, I had rented shell and soccer on, on DVD, like three years before it came out in theaters huh. here. I had hero. I bought hero and an import on DVD. Yeah. Hero's another one. I saw yeah, that like in theater three or, too. Three or four years <laughs> before it came out in theaters. Here. Wild. And the sad thing was Miramax owned it the whole time. Hmm. They just didn't, and it just, it took Quentin Tarantino saying, release this or I'm not working with you again. <laughs> like, honestly, for that to come out. And, but we had this. So because when we moved to San Diego and I knew I wanted to find Kung Fu movies, I was like, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to all the Chinese markets and I'm going to see if any of them have movies for sale. And we had, uh, there's a hole in the wall Chinese food market in San Diego called Hing Long. And uh, Hing Long, which is funny because I heard the Wang Fei Hung theme on in Muzak on in that store once, which is a very kung fu movie nerdy thing. But uh, <laughs> but Hing Long, there was a video store right next to it, and I was like, I crossed my fingers and went in there the first time because this was like a this was in bike riding distance of our place at the time in San Diego. I crossed my fingers and went in there and I was like, God, I hope they have Kung Fu movies. And I walked in there and it was like walking into Valhalla because they had <laughs> tons of Hong Kong movies on DVD. And I was like literally the only white guy who ever went in there. So there was one time and I had, um, and I still have the book here, but I had a um, Asian cult cinema guidebook. Okay. And I had movies circled that I was looking for. And when I lived in Indiana, I had to order. The only way I could get these things was to order them. Right. And so I just, I like literally would go through the guidebook. I'd take the guidebook with me to this video store. And I went in there and I remember the movie I was looking for was an old Andy Lau movie called um, Savior of the Soul, which is an old Wuxia movie. And it, it was kind of an obscure one but it was one that I really wanted to see because it was Wong Kar Wai's first movie that he wrote oh. the screenplay for Okay, before he became a director in his own right. And yeah. so like, I just really wanted to see savior of the soul. And I went up to the counter one day and the guy was used to me asking like for stuff. And I said, yeah, do you have savior of the soul? And I like showed, and he was like, what's that? You know? And I showed him in the book and he was like, dude, you need to go to this store because this, this, this guy will have it he's more than me and he wrote down this address and it was for this store that was in um an, way far away another part of san diego called kearney mesa and so i had to drive there i drove there and it was a karaoke store 
a guy stole karaoke <laughs> machines. Okay. <laughs> but he he rented out kung fu movies and he imported movies. And it's funny because Beth Accomando, who's like one of the the NPR film critic here in town, just recently was on a podcast talking about hard boiled and she talked about she talked about the store and going right. to the store because she was doing the same thing as me at the time. Wild. And this karaoke store was amazing because he sold karaoke machines to businesses and to, to individuals. And then he had on, on the side, he had Kung Fu movies that he sold. Right. It's great. <laughs> and this, but this guy was, was a big nerd for it. Unlike the guy who owned the other store, just, he just rented movies and he didn't give a shit about movies. He wasn't even a film nerd, right. this guy. And so he would come in there and he recognized you. And, and like, literally there were times where I would walk in and he'd have like legendary weapons of China on the counter. And he'd say, buy this. <laughs> you know? Cool. He would just Very cool. tell me like, no, you need to have this. And I didn't always have the money to do it, but like he remembered us and knew. And so I actually, his name was Richard, I think is my memory. But when I was working on Moon Tribe, like I literally like threw ideas at him and basically and he gave me ideas for research and, you know, and he was like one of the first people to say like, well, he's like, you have to use characters from the romance of the three kingdoms and romance of the three kingdoms is like the, to say it's the Lord of the Rings of China is, (laughs) is selling it a little short because there are literally over a hundred Kung Fu movies based on either chapters of the romance of the three kingdoms or parts of the three kingdoms. It's, it's, it's hundreds of years old. It's the greatest fantasy novel in the history of China. It's become folklore. And so there are probably 10 characters straight lifted from romance of the three kingdoms. And it was Richard who actually told me if that's his name, if I'm remembering correct. But he was the one that told me that it's common to use these characters in Chinese fiction, and it's okay. It's like yeah. Lovecraft, you sure. know, like using Lovecraftian characters, and or even like Paul Bunyan or something. Like, like it seems like it's even more mythical, right? Right. And so, like, he he was the one that just said you have to use these characters from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. So I did, and. And so that guy actually p- played a role in, in Moon Tribe too, because, um, you know, and it's funny because I meant to send him a, a copy. I wanted to send, I told him like, well, when the book gets published, I'll send you a copy. And of course I'd moved away and I'm sure he didn't even remember me by the time, <laughs> it was several years later when it actually came out. And I did, I think I Googled like the store to see if it was still there and it wasn't there. And, I, I, and I've driven past the location and, and just, you know, been sad. Yeah. yeah. Actually, cause we don't have a car. So I've been on the bus when I've gone past it. So, right. Right. But I mean, I've gone past the, the place and it, it makes me sad cause there's nothing there now. And, um, but you know, shout out to the, to the karaoke machine store. And, and it was, it was amazing too. Cause you'd be in there browsing Kung Fu movies and like, there was one time I was in there and there was this old Korean family testing out a karaoke machine doing grandma got ran over by a reindeer. So, like, oh, oh, I did not yeah. expect that. Yeah. 
No, it's straight <laughs> up like that's like wow. one of the weird moments. I'll never forget that. You know? <laughs> but, and, and and it was cool because you would just you would yeah, that was a great store and had a big impact on that. So yeah, but yeah, cool. Moon Tribe was was uh, foundational for me and. You know, it's it's the only ep- it's the only fantasy novel I'll ever write. I can tell you that. Is, is that that's definitive? You're not you're not going to dive back into fantasy ever again. I would do another Wuxia novel if somebody wanted me. Well, to. that's that's what I was yeah. that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would do. it. But see, the thing is, is that unfortunately the book doesn't had, didn't sell super well and didn't get out there. So, I mean, it would mean a lot to me too if people like put more demand on it coming back but you know and give it give it a shot but um but yeah it didn't sell great so yeah and i i don't know i mean i'm i'm very proud of the book but <clears throat> it is what it is and outside of writing wuxia i'm not much of a fantasy guy but i do like wuxia novels i like wuxia movies but i'm not i don't like game of thrones or right i mean i read lord of the rings when i was a kid and i was i was into him when i was like in eighth grade but i I'm not a big fantasy guy. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not much of a fantasy guy myself, but I do like some, you know, some stuff and, you know, and this is, you know, hunting the moon tribe is, I don't know, I guess you called it a fantasy novel. I didn't even really think about it like that. I'm like, Oh, okay. This is, it's Kung Fu and vampires. I'm in, you know, (laughs) and of course it's got myth, mythological elements through it throughout the entire novel. Of course, it makes sense. Yeah, it's a yeah. Wuxia novel. I mean, it's a Wuxia vampire novel, but um, and I mean, at the same time, it's a vampire novel. So yeah, it's kind of a horror novel too. But um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it, it's as close to fantasy as I'm ever gonna get. All right, for sure. Well, uh, well, if it didn't sell so great, people listening to this need to get their hands on it. <laughs> yeah, I, we've, we've been talking about it for a while. People need to check this out. It's great. <laughs> well, it's foundational. <laughs> and it's really important. It was the first novel I ever actually wrote so yeah yeah i'm pretty proud of it so yeah cool the cover is amazing too um the artist eric shanover is a oz he does oz comics right i was gonna say i i know that name i didn't yeah, realize yeah, that yeah he, he he's mostly known for doing like oz comics oz oz yeah, yeah. right <laughs> um and oh, uh, l frank l frank bombs oz yeah yes and uh but he also did a really he did a whole series based on the trojan war called age of bronze right fuck yes of course yeah and that's good shit yeah that's really good yeah and eric basically did that cover for me as a favor because i how i met eric was i was at a science fiction con here in san diego something and um Eric and his partner, David, just happened to sit down next to me while we were waiting for a panel that was late. So we just started talking and became friendly. And then their company, they publish Oz books, right? As, okay, yeah. as a business at the time they did. Um, Hungry Tiger Press, I believe was the name of the <laughs> press. Okay. And um, Eric and David, I just see them tabling at events and cons and i would always talk to them and they were just super friendly they would they were always asking me what i was doing and when i mentioned that i was going to start writing hunting the moon tribe like eric told me he's like well if you ever need somebody to do the cover art i love doing chinese art and i never no one's ever asked me to to do it before 
and like that artwork is amazing yeah and it's great for the cover and he like knocked that out in like a couple days because i sent him the book and he read it i think well no actually i think i sent him the screenplay i think i, I might have sent him the screenplay no i sent him both i sent him both okay so okay. um and specifically the cover it has um look at it but the cover has uh it's specifically from one scene from the from the novel yeah because it's specifically the hell the the entrance to chinese hell is through a waterfall in the novel and the waterfall's there and there's a were tiger um from the novel that's there and um (laughs) Who loves yeah. comic books? <laughs> yeah, and some of the weirdness of of Moon Tribe is underrated because there's like a whole chapter with Madame Muse House of Freaks. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because a lot of times, you know, because I was publishing at the time with a lot of Bizarro pub- with the Eraserhead, and Eraserhead put it out on a on an imprint, and there was talk was whether Moon Tribe was Bizarro enough, and I was like, man, that's a really weird book. I mean. <laughs> Madden yeah. Castle of Freaks alone, but um, <laughs> it, yeah. So anyways, that's Moon Tribe. Cool. Well, then let's uh, rewind a little bit to uh, the vegan revolution with zombies. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was the first published novel. It came out first. And it's real simple um, how that happened is I didn't want to write that at first. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> As anyone who knows Carlton Mellick the third, yeah. right? Um, Carlton is kind of a legend in in Bizarro fiction. And if you don't know who Carlton Mellick is, Carlton Mellick is probably the most prolific author of Bizarro fiction, one of the founders of the genre. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. write, he's written books like uh, Baby Jesus Butt Plug and <laughs> haunted, um, haunted Vagina, right? Yeah, and so he writes. <laughs> You know, but his work recently is less of the kind of shock factor and is more like quicksand house. And, and he, I think he's evolved quite a bit as an artist, but one of the things Carlton's really good at is, is uh, market. And especially at the time he knew how to figure out a book that was going to, going to sell. And I was, I, I think the, the origin of this was that there was a, house party at Jeff Burke and Cameron Pierce who are two bizarro writers editors and they were moving into a house in Portland at one point when we were living there and like Gina and Karen came down and a bunch of authors read flash fiction pieces at at that and I actually read one of my stories from the gutter limits at that party okay. which <laughs> is the one about the serial killer yard gnome <laughs> yes and yes. <laughs> i think because i had a reputation because of screams from a dying world which by the way i didn't mention this but it was nominated for the first wonderland book award for, right for yeah short story collection the first year of the wonderland book awards and i Very of cool. course lost to silent weapons for quiet wars by cody goodfellow but if you're gonna lose to somebody you might as well lose to <laughs> one of the best short story writers of our generation so why not And um, (laughs) anyways, uh, I read the serial killer yard gnome story at, at this party. I just, I I think because it was a funny story, it changed the perception of me with the bizarre writers that I could write funny. 
And I remember Carlton really getting into the, the, the story and having, you know, you notice when Carlton's laughing because he's a very kind of stoic dude, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and he was laughing a lot during that story. So I, I did notice that, but it was a couple of days later, I got a phone call at, at home when we still had a landline and it was Carlton and, and it was, it was hilarious because it's, it, it sounds made up. This is exactly how it happened. <laughs> but Carlton, I got on the phone with Carlton and he's like, David, I'm like, yeah, vegan books sell, zombie books sell. You need to write a vegan zombie book. <laughs> and my first thought was, that's stupid. <laughs> like, ah, no. But he said to me, he's like, look, we can talk about it, but if you write this for us, you know, we'll give you a five book deal and the next four books will be yours to choose, which was a little overstated, but right, <laughs> right. Um, as far as what you could do with the five, with the four other books, but, um, but they were basically, Carlton was like, basically in that call offering me four more books. Right. And so I said, well, listen, it sounds terrible to me, but give me some time and I'll try to think of something. And he said, I'll give you two weeks and then you can meet with me and Ro with Rose and I pitch your ideas and we'll start with your vegan book. And then, you know, and, and I basically came in with a ten, 10 book pitch and I had already written my second attempt at a novel, which was a cyberpunk novel that had the had terrible title of the very last drop. <laughs> um, I don't think that's, that's that's an all right title. Well, it was about the it's the uh, it was a cyberpunk novel about the world running out of drinkable water. Right. It's very much a product of the Bush years and completely unsalvageable. So don't even don't <laughs> at me if anyone's like I want to read that. Like you don't. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I looked at it a couple of years ago. It is not salvageable, but it was my second attempt at a novel. It was my first attempt at a science fiction novel. So I had the thought that I needed to go in there and I needed to, to that needed to be one too. But I wrote like a 10, a pitch, 10 book pitch or 10 pitches. I wrote them out. And the last one I had to fill in was, was the vegan zombie one. And I had nothing. And for, <laughs> and, and for two weeks, I tried to come up with something serious, like like a serious take, like because I'm a serious horror writer, so I gotta come yeah. up with something serious. And then I was at Powell's in the horror section, trying to, and I and I had like two or three days left, and I had no idea what I was gonna do. And I was in the horror section and I heard these two teenage women walk, they walked into the horror section and they were like, look, it's pride and prejudice with zombies. It's hilarious. <laughs> and I was so annoyed <laughs> by hearing that, that the, basically the whole concept came to me on my bike ride home from Powell's. And so basically on, and you'll, it's one of two books that occurred to me on a bike ride that have been published, but 
so the whole thing came to me and basically the idea for vegan rev was and i consider vegan rev to be a science fiction novel as well but that's when i just gave up with the idea like it's stupid to try and make it serious and i can have fun writing a funny book too and i was a little worried that the first novel would be a funny one there were there were attempts at funny stories and screams i think (laughs) i'd have to think back to that there's definitely funny stories and uh amazing punk stories but yeah but yeah, I just, I gave up and I was like, yeah, let's, let's do a funny story. Um, and the concept for vegan revolution with zombies is that they're, and at the time, the big debate in the animal rights community was, and the thing about vegan rev is, and one of the things I'm proud of, it's the, the journal of animal studies, which is a animal rights and ethics academic journal actually did a multiple page review of the vegan revolution with zombies the thing is the vegan revolution with zombies works on three levels if you're a zombie fan there's all kinds of easter eggs and weird like kind of in jokes if you're a vegan there's all kinds of easter eggs and in jokes (laughs) and if you ever lived in portland (laughs) there's there's a level that that works. So if you can get the Portland jokes, the vegan jokes, <laughs> and the thing about it is, is there is serious animal rights critiques of the movement that are a part of the book that if you don't know about the animal rights community, you wouldn't get it. And so I'm proud of the multiple layers that for a book that's meant to be funny and, you know, that has juggalo characters and whatever else. <laughs> Or in is in the vegan revolution with zombies. There's a very there's a very deep level of social criticism that's going on in that book that goes over a lot of people's heads. For one thing, the big debate in the animal rights movement at the time was: Are you a welfareist or a liberationist or an abolitionist? Right. And so, at the time, the people who are abolitionists and I lean more on the abolitionist scale, of course me personally however i'm not a big fan of some of the people from the abolitionist side of the debate either there's people from that side of the debate that i don't really like the way they treat other people uh and i definitely don't like the welfareism i'm not a i'm i'm not but the the argument is is should we be fighting for better treatment of animals or should we be fighting for the abolition of their exploitation you know, it's, it's the same debate of whether, right. So that was a huge part of the animal rights community at the time when vegan revolution with zombies was written. And so that debate between the welfare, and the abolitionists in the novel is like kind of soaking every page. The fact that the main character works at a publishing house that does with zombie tie-in novels exclusively (laughs) means that there's a lot of criticism of the zombie fanaticism and this is pre-walking dead right right and so one of the things that helped vegan revolution with zombies become my top selling book ever is that this book came out at a time when we could say it's portlandia meets the walking dead right yeah and you know how we pitched it and that's how it was sold and and it's written with kind of a very tongue-in-cheek way. Like each chapter ends with a quiz. 
Um, I've never graded anyone on their, (laughs) uh, you know, so it has that. What's hilarious is um, when I turned in my first draft. Well, so anyways, I went to pitch it right to Rose and Carlton and they immediately were like, hell yes, this is exactly what we wanted. This is perfect. And what's funny is the, the first bit of when I turned in the first draft, the first note that I got from either of them on the book was I got an email from Carlton that said, more food as gore. <laughs> um, which is hilarious because that's a, that's a great note <laughs> yeah, the first, because the first draft i didn't want to come off as too preachy because you know as somebody who's militantly vegan i didn't want at first i was afraid to write too much of the this is all the horrible shit that happens to animals to, to make me dairy and eggs and then um but then when carlton gave me the note like uh <laughs> more food is gore it was it was on <laughs> yeah um, because he was basically giving you know telling me like yeah that's what we want two of the things i'm really proud of with vegan revolution with zombies is that yes i do think it's funny it is a funny book there's a lot of humor that goes over some people's heads um like if you don't understand what freeganism is for example you won't get the really weird commentary on the zombie genre where the one person who goes zombie when they're hiding in the vegan mini mall is the guy who's freaking and which (laughs) you know i don't think everyone gets but that was important yeah and then so part of the plot of that thing and and why i'm proud of it is that it's a the actual concept is that every you know everyone thinks when they hear the title that oh it's a bunch of vegan zombies but it's the opposite. Everyone right. except for the vegan are zombies. The vegans are zombies, which of course is the only way I'm going to write it, right? Right, right. And, and then, <laughs> so when I determined that that's what I was going to do, because it didn't make sense to me to have vegans walking around wanting to eat brains, that everyone except for the vegans, the vegans are the only ones who aren't affected. The idea that considering that the debate was welfare versus like one of the big things in the movement at the time was this con we were rejecting the concept of humane meat, right. the idea that you could make meat humanely. And so the science fictional concept is, is the thing that turns people into zombies is this new so-called humane meat that is being designed to, so animals won't experience suffering. And so it's obviously a metaphor and it's not real science, but you know, Sure. But but that was a way to make humane meat the reason of the apocalypse, which was <laughs> which for me was because for me, there's nothing that pisses me off more as, as, as a vegan is when somebody tries to tell you, oh, but this meat was raised humanely. Right. Right. right? <laughs> so for me to write a novel where humane <laughs> meat was the thing that that killed the world, really fun and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of a good fuck you. And it's a little bit of, uh, it's a little punk rock too, I think, this novel. I don't know we're going to get into that in a second. And maybe it's just a great uh, segue to do so. But um, I I came to Vegan Revolution with Zombies a little later. I want to say I read it in 2013. 
That's not. That's only two years after it came out. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, and and all, it was you know it was an introduction to me on yeah. a lot of that stuff. Like you know, I I was looking up stuff like free freakinism, <laughs> like right. did, didn't know right. I'm I wasn't in that scene, but uh, yeah, and there is there is this. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's more it's more slyly put and. Uh, there's a level of snark in the book that I remember enjoying as well. And, uh, and Uh, no, that's a zero fucks given book. Yeah. Yeah. And and just for that reason, it's, it it does sort of feel very punk rock, I think. Well, and if you know all those communities, there's more punk rock fuck yous in that than, than are apparent on the surface. Um, for example, there's a, there's a, a very thinly veiled professor character who is a, 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 an absolute F you to a real life person in the animal rights community okay. who was, I'm not a huge fan of, or was not, I mean, I don't even know what he's doing now cause I'm not following him, but at the time he was, um, and it's funny because I agree with most of his positions cause he was an abolitionist. He was super brutal to other activists and he had like this kind of sycophant following of people that like, um, like basically did anything that he said and lived by his words. And so I make fun of that quite a bit um, in the book. And so like, that's a thing that if you didn't know that part of the community, you wouldn't know that. And, but, but it's there, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really proud of that book, but. And any specific form of satire is going to have stuff that hits and stuff that, goes over the head of any regular reader and that's fair right yeah yeah totally and yeah it's not for everybody um but it's funny because i one of the things i i was taught a very valuable lesson about reading reviews um with vegan revolution with zombies because within a couple days of each other like back-to-back reviews of the book there was one person that called it humorless and for vegans only and then the next one was a guy who was a hunter who was saying like this is the funniest book i ever read in my life (laughs) so it's like you know i i was kind of pissed to read humorless because i put a lot of energy into it being funny right and i'm sorry the juggalo neighbors try not to laugh at the juggalo neighbors but I think that a lot of the people who say that something is humorless are humorless. La- lack a lack a sense of humor. I I stand by that. I stand by that. But yeah, cool. Yep, that's vegan rev. I mean, that's, <laughs> I don't know. It's um, yeah, it's an interesting. It's, it's a fun book. I'm proud of it. But yeah, yeah, you should be. Yeah, it's great. Well, let's let's get into uh, the punk rock trilogy, the horror punk or the uh, genre punk trilogy, uh, starting with the absolutely excellent Boot Boys of the Wolf Reich. Some more uh, uh, personal life experience injected here. Yeah, so Boot Boys was in that ten book pitch. Um, okay. To to Eraserhead, and um, it was one that. It was funny because I have a very distinct memory with Boot Boys of I was talking a lot in that pitch and Rose was asking lots of questions, uh, but Carlton didn't say a word like through most of it, which is if you know Carlton is very normal. Like while I was talking, he just like made put up a finger and then just like pointed at the piece of paper at Boot Boys of the Wolf Reich, <laughs> the title, 
and just like pointed at that one and was like, this one. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great it, fucking title. It is a great fucking title. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Boo Boys of the Wolf Reich was one that I had been kind of kicking around in my head for a while already. And, you know, every horror writer's got to have their coming of age novel, right? Yeah. And so most of the authors we grew up reading, their coming of age novels like Stand By Me, Boy's Life, those kinds of things, they um 50s. They they take place in the 50s because yeah. that's when those writers were growing up and I knew that if we were going to start we we're going to start seeing some 80s coming of age novels, I think Keynes, Ghouls, like yeah. you know, that might be late 70s. I, I'm I'm not sh- I, I yeah, it's it's... I read Ghoul, but um but anyways, I knew that if I was going to do a coming of age novel from the 80s, it was going to be punk rock no matter what. Yeah. And so I went through uh, anti-racist skinhead phase. I, obviously, I'm Jewish, Agronoff. And a lot of people don't realize that anti-racist skinheads are a thing, but the original skinheads yeah. were black. Um, yeah. in, in England, they were uh, Jamaican immigrants to London rude boys <laughs> rude boys yeah they they would go out dancing they had to wear their boots because it was the only shoes they could afford so they wore their work right. boots out dancing no sorry they, I, I i said rude boys rude boys yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and and um they would shave their heads so they wouldn't get lice the factories they were working at and so the the style of the shaved head and the big boots like originally originated with these jamaican immigrants who yeah. were ska music that's that's the quickest skinhead history i can give you (laughs) when i was 15 16 years old i had like a one year skinhead phase at the time this is something about me that's uh, i was going to boarding school because i went to a school specifically for kids with learning disabilities um called brem uh prep school in uh which sounds like really hoity-toity but it was it was not um in carbondale illinois and so the last three years of high school, I went to this boarding school in Carbondale, Illinois, and um, which is a little college town, like five hours south of Chicago. But my roommate there, Brendan, and one of my best friends in high school was was a skinhead. And so he kind of got me into the whole skin thing. Sometimes we, oh, for, for weekends, we would take the train up to Chicago and hang out with the skinheads in Chicago. We would go to shows we go to shows there, saw Agnostic Front, Nick Rega, and all these like old old bands like all the time. And there was a club there called Medusa's. A lot of the skinheads worked the doors there. Just found out one of the uh, most well-known scenesters from that scene, a guy named Dwayne Thomas, just recently passed away, which is really hmm. sad. All the skinheads, they basically, they hung out in this parking lot <laughs> in Chicago called, at the, it was a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. And they called it Punkin' Donuts. And all the punks and skinheads would hang out at the parking lot of this Dunkin' Donuts. Now, one of the things, I'm kind of working on a loose trilogy of novels um, that this would also be a part of, more than one trilogy, about the spaces that punk rockers hung out at before the internet. Right. Because before the internet, in like in Bloomington, we had People's Park in my hometown of Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana. And and Indianapolis, they used to hang out in this neighborhood called Broad Ripple in the parking lot of a flower shop. I don't know. (laughs) Um, 
And in Chicago, they hung out at Pumpkin Donuts. They also had an alley that they called the drinking alley that whenever somebody scored some booze or whatever, <laughs> they'd go drink in the, in the alley, which is also <laughs> in Boot Boys. Right, right. And so I got a chance to see the big town skins a few different times, and I had some crazy experiences. I saw a guy beat to death with a keg tap um, for, for uh, having uh, raped one of the skinheads um, – uh, girlfriends um and so I wasn't sad about it uh, sorry I'm not gonna be yeah uh, yeah no shit but, uh you <clears throat> know it was like one something that I saw there um I saw tons of fights with with the you know basically gang fights with the Nazi skinheads that um that existed on the south side of Chicago like I didn't see a lot of it because I was only there for a couple weekends at a time, but you know how writers are. We pack things in our brains and yeah, we yeah. experiences. We put them away. This, this is going somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when I was thinking about like doing a coming of age novel. So yeah, the thing about uh, boot boys and pumpkin and all that is that it, it's just, I had knew I wanted to write a novel about that, time in that place but i wasn't the first one to do it um there's actually a novel called american skins i forget who wrote it oh right but yeah and that guy he also wrote about the chicago scene but the funny thing was is i read that and it didn't feel like i know the guy was hanging out there and he probably hung out there more than me but it just it didn't feel like the same scene to me and i felt like there was still room to write a novel about that and then i thought well but if i'm gonna do it i'm a horror guy but sorry so. was that a novel yeah american skins oh for some reason I, I i've heard of that book and i've always just thought it was nonfiction. oh no no it's a novel okay and, weird and, okay and it's a literary novel and it gets a little weird and it, it and it's not super it's it's good it's fine i liked it there was room or territory there too, which is weird that I feel like I was going for more realism in my werewolf novel, but, um, <laughs> but for, for whatever reason, the, the idea that, cause you know, the whole Nazi occult thing is a big, you know, it's something. And yeah. obviously another influence on that novel was uh, Robert McCammon's wolf hour, which is, uh, you know, about a secret agent werewolf, there are uh, little um, homages to Wolf's Hour. Um, I'm like Stephen Graham Jones in the sense that not as good of a writer, but uh, <laughs> I have who a, is <laughs> yeah, who is. Uh, but I have a similar method, which is that if if he's going to write a werewolf novel or a vampire novel, he tries to steep himself in all the movies, all the books. He rereads everything. So like I remember I reread Wolf Sour and Wolfen really close to okay. to outlining just because I didn't want to retread the same things or I wanted to make sure just I I I'm just I'm with Steven on that like I I think that's the way to go um yeah. personally like um you're you're trying not to copy but you want to know what's been there I, I don't know it's just it makes sense to me but at the same time, like, so I just, I don't remember where the werewolf idea totally came from. I think it was just the Nazi occult thing. But then once I, as soon as I had the idea that what if the Nazi skinheads became werewolves, 
because the thing was the Nazi skinheads in Chicago were, as you would imagine, they would be, were, were total idiots. And <laughs> right. they did. And when they came around in Chicago, they got beat back very fast. There was like really not much of a fight to it. Right. I just thought, well, it would be scarier or more frightening if they were monsters. And then the werewolf thing just kind of came quickly to me. And then once I had the concept, you know, from there I was off. And, um, you know, Ed Morris, um, uh, my um, writer friend from um, Portland, who I wrote a book with at one point, Ed and I were hanging out a lot. Ed's an, uh, um I don't know if Ed still considers himself a skinhead. I think at heart he does in in a way, but he kind of came up in that whole thing too. And Ed, you know, gave a lot of really good notes on the first draft of Boot Boys of the Wolf Reich. And um, it's funny if you look at, um, I still have his, the, the, he printed out Boot Boys and his um, handwritten notes on the, the manuscript is hilarious like the first couple of page, how much shit he wrote on the, <laughs> on the first couple of pages. Wow. The, the, the later we got into the book, the less crazy he was going with notes, because I think I got more into the um, flow of the book, I think a little bit more too. And I think kind of saw where I was going with things, but, but Boot Boys of the Wolf Ring, one of the things that's funny too is, and then again, this is reading the reviews, but I saw a review once that said it's obvious that this that 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 Agronov loves skinhead culture. Um, <laughs> not really. I know I'm not anti skinhead culture, but to say I love it is it's an important part of my life. So it's part part of my coming of age. Yeah. Um, and per- and so perhaps is is extremely aware of skinhead culture. Yes, right? and yeah. if you're gonna write about it, that. you you my characters loved skinhead culture. Right. And I did really love it when I was 15 years old. Sure. Sure. Right. So I could, if I'm writing a coming of age novel about being 15 years old, then yeah, I'm going to bring it. Now the main character um, is loosely based off my old roommate, Brendan. He had a best friend, Saeed, and I basically combined their lives to make, um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not even remembering the main character's name, um, but but whatever. Anyways, the main character, his he was um, a combination of Brendan and Saeed because Brendan was definitely a, a white kid and Saeed was not. And I, and and I wanted just so there was no. Well, I mean, obviously the diversity is a good thing, but I wanted um, the main character to be biracial, just so there was no, there was no you couldn't mistake the fact you weren't going to be like, Oh, he's a Nazi. Right. Right. And, um, but then, uh, by doing that, um, Saeed's the, the Brennan's real life friend, so much of his life story bled into the character, like his parents, both being professors that had moved to Chicago and that kind of thing. And, and then that added some contextual things to the characterizations, but, um, there's a lot of real life people from the skinhead scene in Chicago that made it into that book, real life moments. There was really a guy who had fuck tattooed on his forehead that everyone called fuckhead. 
um yeah <laughs> uh, that that is a true thing a lot of the pumpkin donuts stuff is true i want to know how fuckhead is doing now <laughs> he may or may not have met a keg tap um, oh, oh okay <clears throat> <laughs> yikes yeah I, I no longer care how he's doing <laughs> yeah so um there's a you know there's there's some some so if it, there's things that seem authentic in there, there there's a reason why <laughs> right um, yeah it, it feels very real it feels very real like like from someone who was at least immersed in that culture for a period of time and and you know as you know as a teenage punk rocker myself i i knew very few it wasn't you know i i'm a little younger than you so like I don't know, or maybe it was just Canada, but there wasn't a huge pervasive skinhead culture in Canada um, in the 90s. And well, skinhead culture, like we had a skinhead scene in Bloomington, Indiana, of all weird randomness. Skinhead culture a lot of times happened when one person starts the scene, basically. Right. And right. so all you need is one person and then a couple friends who follow and then you got your but a lot of those things, like the running of the gauntlet where the where they, they all have to get punched in order to like that that's real stuff we did. Um stupid, but you know, we <laughs> right. Right. we did it and um th- those are all you know a lot of those details are real and you know the characters for the most part are made up. Um but you know, if it seems authentic, it's it's a lot of that stuff. Oh, and a piece of uh, Agronov trivia in there. When I was fifteen or sixteen, when I was fifteen, the summer that I started the whole skinhead thing, we started a skinhead hardcore band in Bloomington that never recorded, played like four shows, and somehow wrote fifteen songs and never Mosh, moshed into oblivion, right? No, no, no. No? The, that was a joke band later. Oh, but, okay. <laughs> yeah. But um but uh it was called Standalone, which is okay. took, took the name from the Sick of It All song, not the right. Iced Earth song. Um <laughs> free that. Uh but Standalone is mentioned. They play a show in Chicago in the book. Now Standalone in real life never made it further north than Lafayette, Indiana but that was, that was my real band um, from that era. So, and there's a little reference to us playing a uh, ARA benefit in Chicago and in one of the scenes. And so I've made standalone Canon uh, <laughs> uh, in, in that way, but, Perfect. but yeah, and, and standalone was funny too, because that was like, I don't know how we wrote 15 songs, but I will say, Anyone who saw Standalone at one of their three or four shows, and by the way, our first name was Boot to the Head, um, <laughs> which I still think is would be a great name for an oi band. But, yeah, definitely. Um, we changed it to Standalone. I was actually really proud of that band. I really wish we had recorded because uh, there's a couple of the songs that I, I can still hear them in my head, and I, I know that we're a pretty good band, but... But Jack, who is the guitar player of Standalone, who's I'm pretty sure still a skinhead, <laughs> went on to play in patriot which is a very huge um oi band um from north carolina he moved there and was went on to do that and um connect briefly with jack around the time that this book came out just to be like hey um you know we're mentioned in there (laughs) you know (laughs) but like we were agnostic front nerds and there was um and our 
and Jack, our guitar player, could play every song on live at CDs, Agnostic nice. Front, from beginning to end. So cool. we sounded a lot like Agnostic Front, even though we cool. took our name from Sick of It All. Very cool. But, but Boo Boys, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, a little aside, a friend of a friend came to my 40th birthday party. Wait, was it 40? No, that can't be right. 39th, I guess. Um, anyway, I threw a party. I was newly single, threw a party. And uh, they, you know, he, he's a vinyl head. And uh, Live at CBGB's was, uh, was the record he brought and gave to me on, on my birthday. So, Oh, that first very, Live at CBGB's record is so good. all-time So favorite. good. Yeah. I was, I was like, how did you know? He's like, well, <laughs> it's, it's like, a- I figured you'd like this. <laughs> that record is was my favorite record when I was 15 years old. So I think, I think it's be- I think it's better than any of their studio stuff. Absolutely. And it's a perfect combination of songs because it has songs from Victim in Pain and it has songs from the, like the more metal records. And uh, yeah, Strength by Agnostic yeah. Front. Great song. <laughs> so good. So good. Great yeah. shit. And it's okay. It's okay to talk a little bit about punk. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're in the midst of this. Let's let's move on to amazing punk stories. Yeah, which came out. Uh, it came out a year later, 2015. Hey, it's there the it one is. I actually have sitting next to me today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, amazing punk stories was conceived as a collection. Okay. From the beginning, it was um, one of the ideas that was in that pitch. <laughs> you know, um, and originally it was just a title but so so one of the ways that the bizarre community at the time worked was there was these starter kits right that that authors would give a free story to um and there was different colored bizarro starter kits there was bizarro starter kit blue bizarro and i was in bizarro starter kit purple with jeff burke and i can't remember who who all was in it but and i wrote I think I've only read green. It was a green. Mm, I don't have green. I have. And I can't remember who was in it either. Yeah, I have. I have blue, gold, and purple. I think. Okay, it's the ones that I have. But um, but the idea was is that you would donate a story to the starter kit, and then later they try to publish it in, in a collection or a part of some novellas in order to basically you'd get paid by doing that. Right. So the idea was that uh, eventually I was going to do a collection to kind of pay off, you know, my inclusion in the starter kit. And the story that I, the original story that I wrote was a very serious, like attempt at, it was just too, it was too serious. And Cameron Pierce, who was working on the starter kit at the time had, he basically, he's like, yeah, I think we need something more like Vegan Rev, something that's like funnier. And so the result was the story called Punkypine Moshers of the Apocalypse. Right. And because they kind of challenged me to write something weirder and funnier, um, I just kind of went nuts with it. And um, the cover character uh, on the cover of the book, which is my favorite character name, Dressica Killmaiden. <laughs> Very um, cool. And... Um, and it's funny because the thing was, I I usually always have a plan with the story. I just, I, I'm an outliner. I'm a planner. Even with a short story, I usually will, even though I don't outline short stories, usually I have a few times. 
But a lot of times I'll just, I'll be thinking about a short story for weeks before I actually write it. And Punky Pine Moshers was one that I just basically wrote from the seat of my pants, which is very rare for me. The idea was like, what if um, Ronald Reagan killed the world in a nuclear war, which, and I basically wanted to write an 80s post-apocalypse, an 80s punk rock post-apocalypse. And then I was like, well, uh, it'll be like my fantasy, like, like, like a punk rock Lord of the Rings, but, you know, kind of thing was like the original thought of it. And so I wrote Punky Pine Moshers. And by the way, this story was included in the best bizarro fiction of the decade collection that Pierce put out Nice, um, alongside, you know, huge names like Joe R. Lansdale was in that. And so it's time that I got to share table contents with some you know pretty big names and very cool um you know what actually absolutely one of the honors of my writing career was that and cameron just went nuts for porcupine (laughs) moshers and i did just go way overboard like there's pedal cars there's like um you know and it's wild it's a it's, it's it's like basically if punk rockers were the only ones that survived the apocalypse there's, and then the villains are Ronald Reagan and a, a corpse puppet of Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's really fucking very <laughs> punk rock. And um, I had a lot of fun writing it at one. So, you know what, actually this was not in the, um, in the pitches to Rose because this wouldn't have existed at that point. Okay. Um, so this was not, I, I stand corrected on that. What it was, was that after Punky Pine Moshers, at one point, Jeff said to me, have you thought about how you want to collect Punky Pine Moshers in anything? Have you thought of any collections? And then I, I pitched to him the idea of amazing punk stories. And we had a lot more elaborate idea of what we were going to do with it than we eventually did, which is why we have the Nick Gucker art in it that, um, you know, is peppered throughout the book is because originally our concept was so that so the idea, the concept of amazing punk stories was that it was pulp fiction and every style of pulp fiction got a punk rock version that there would be cosmic horror. There would be twilight zone type story. There would be, um, uh, extreme horror there would be sci-fi fantasy um a western there's a western <laughs> yeah um zombie yeah. um there's a spy story and right uh, yeah. but mostly it was horror and and each one and so the original idea was is that we would have a fake cover for each story of whatever magazine whatever you know punk rock version of you know weird weird science or whatever you know whatever magazine it would have been in right and the idea was nick was going to do art for each of these like fake magazines and and then um but commissioning that much art the time that it would take we got a little lazy about (laughs) doing that idea there's a part of me that wishes we had kind of waited and and done it but I'm happy with how the book turned out. So, and then of course, one of the great honors of my career is that it comes with an introduction from my favorite author on the planet, 
John Shirley. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard to get John to read fiction of any kind at this point. So the fact that he would sit down and read my book was great. It, it was, yeah, that was, I was just through the moon when, when he sent me that. And like, I kind of read it like four times in a row. <laughs> you know, Completely understandable. Completely yeah. understandable. Yeah. And then, and, and Nick's art for, um, Punkypine Moshers, which, um, I mean, it is Dressica from the story and you can see her spear, which she has in the story, but there yeah. are also ghosts. So right. if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the cover. There's, <laughs> there's the ghosts. And, um, and then, uh, of course, Matthew Rivera uh, aged everything and made it look like like an old punk, amazing stories magazine. And and so once we had the concept, like basically I outlined it like a novel where I said, OK, I need a Western. I need a spy story. I've got a fantasy already with Punkypine Moshers. I need an extreme horror story. And then it's all tied together with the opening cosmic horror story and then the haunted house story, which ends it. So it ends in a haunted house story connected, which is kind of a spoiler, but whatever. Anyways. (laughs) um, But yeah, burning dots in heaven, which is the cosmic horror story and the last show at the mortuary collective are connected. And um, you know, I, it's, you know, in between the stories are varying degrees. I mean, like, I'm not super proud of the Western story. That was a really hard one to come up with. <laughs> um, I feel like I could write I, five times. I could write a whole novel based on From Russia with Mohawks, which right, is right, right. my story. And well, the, well, the Western was, it was more like a... It's kind of like a tone, tone yeah, I was going to say like a taste palette or something like this is the idea of a punk rock Western, right? Cause yeah. it is very sh- like, that's the shortest. Well, that and the spy story are probably the shortest in the book, but I think, I think that is definitely the shortest, right? Yeah. Johnny and the gunslingers, I believe is the name of the story. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And the whole idea was, is that there's this trope in Westerns where, you know, the gunslingers retired to the old farm and like, yeah. he doesn't want to leave. And so I, th- I thought the idea of like the old punk rocker who doesn't want to go on tour and he's <laughs> retired on the farm. And so there's all the cheesy moments you see from the Westerns when the gunslinger's wife is like, don't you go, you go, you don't come back. And like all that stuff. And yeah. So, you know, but I, I actually am toying right now with a horror Western idea and, Cool. Uh, for a novella right now and so i'd actually kind of like to do a more serious western in the future so we'll cool. see it's a really fucked up story so <laughs> excellent but, yeah but i i mean there's 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 i don't know the sci-fi story which is um i'd actually like to expand that into something uh punk beyond the red line Okay, right. That yeah. that that's super fun. I mean, you you say the sci-fi. So there's a couple like uh is it called Reunion Show? Yeah, Reunion Show is right. the, I kind of saw that as the Twilight Zone. Oh, okay. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Fair. Yeah. Um yeah. and there's uh well, I guess it's sort of fantasy the uh, again, uh you bring in the idea of the uh uh seniors care home. Yeah, uh, that was that was originally like, written for the magazine of Bizarro. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm so bad with story titles, but I th- I think Tasha that one and the fountain. Right. Yeah. Tasha and the fountain, of course. Yeah. Uh that w- that one was probably uh, well, I've re- again, this is something that I've recently reread before this. Uh, mm-hmm. and I th- I think Tasha and the Fountain is 
probably my favorite. It's got this beautiful emotional anchor and yeah. and w- just like this weight to it that's that's really powerful. But yeah, uh Punk Beyond the Red Line is is just it's weird like reading that I'm like, yeah, yeah, I I very much know this frenetic <laughs> e- energy of a mosh pit and there's my dog and and i'm like yeah i, I, I yeah <laughs> and i'm like yeah i totally know this and i'm 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 saying this in my head while i'm reading a story about alien slugs and shit you know <laughs> it's, it's yeah. really cool in the um, that has my favorite fake band name in the book because in the back of the book I list all the fake band names that I made yeah, up. Yeah, And there's a band in in the story, Punk Beyond the Red Line, called the Planet Fucking Beasts. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's <laughs> gotta be one of my favorite fake band names. But but yeah, I I I have that's one that I think could be uh, if I do say so myself i think it'd be a, a tv series i would love yeah. to expand that one and um so maybe someday and i know just the person i, I want to write it with me so i've um, i've kind of already um, put some feelers out there in the world so there, cool. there may be a pilot script in the future there but it would be quite a bit different and expanded but um but yeah i i i like that one um quite a bit it also kind of tangentially takes place in the in the same universe as uh flesh trade the novel that i wrote with right um, with ed morris because the concept of the red line is yeah is is the same in there but um but because it's kind of a goofy funny story i i don't know i don't know if i count that as canon but (laughs) fair (laughs) but amazing punk stories is the first book i released when i was back in san diego after moving back here right so that was cool too because like I did a signing at, at Mysterious Galaxies, which is one of my favorite bookstores. So um very cool for that. And and uh so I have fond memories of that book coming out. Yeah, so there there's all right. But uh but yeah, I don't I don't know. Um as far as you know, that that one uh reunion show was also published in Dark Discoveries, so okay. That was a that was a big deal for me. So, but however, it was written for this collection. I just, I published it there first. It was, cool. it was conceived to be in this collection. It was when, when, when I conceived it as the Twilight Zone story of the, right. of the piece. And that one, I feel like is another one that you might have to kind of understand the world that I'm writing about. Like that story was definitely influenced by Ian McKay, even Ian McKay and Fugazi yeah. and Minor Threat and that whole scene. And so it's kind of a weird thing to take a Philip K. Dick vibe and mix it with with the founder of Straight Edge, but um, <laughs> right, right, you know, it um, works. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, I, great story. Yeah, yeah, and that's that story is about the the nostalgia bands and reunion shows, and kind of takes a sci fi um, angle to it. So yeah, yeah, I mean, all the stories have a bit of horror and sci fi angle to it, and. Um, and then, you know, like things like, you know, like last show at the Mortuary Collective is the, is the haunted house story. And then like book your own fucking life is the extreme horror. And then, like, yeah, that, um, and that, by the way, is inspired by, um, and, and I, that title, the book, your own fucking life, I feel like I want to explain is that back in the day, if you were 
a DIY punk band, the way you booked shows and did tours was there was a magazine that Maximum Rock and Roll put out every year called Book Your Own Fucking Life. <laughs> that was like a list of show venues and promoters and bands. So that's how people like booked um, DIY punk tours back in the day. Yeah. I, I was playing with that. Um, And if you don't know what book your own fucking life was, and by the way, I believe that's John Shirley's favorite of anything that I've ever written. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay, cool. He's he's told me multiple times that book your own fucking life is, is, is his favorite. Well, Um, he was doing that shit, right? (laughs) In the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Even before that book existed. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Pre, pre that. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it is the sort of perfect jumping off point for an extreme horror story, right? Yeah, well, I was playing with the cannibals in the woods type yeah. trope. And um, and so the idea of that story is if there was a, a bunch of cannibals that live in the woods <laughs> that use a fake listing for booking DIY punk shows in the, in the country to lure in um, teenagers to eat. <laughs> um, yeah and uh it seemed like a unique way to do the cannibal in the woods story and probably one of the more brutal things i've ever written but it, um, it, it yeah it's sort of like i don't know like green room if instead of nazis it was you know the family from texas chainsaw massacre you know <laughs> i'll take it i'll take it yeah 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 and um but although i will I do want to point out that Green Room came out after this. Book. Oh yeah, it did. It did. Very good <laughs> for skinhead reasons too, because you know. But uh, but yeah, but yeah, that's amazing punk stories. I, yeah, I de- definitely. Yeah, I'm proud of that one too. <laughs> cool. Yeah. As well, you that's funny because Anthony said to me recently, "Don't you?" Because do, he was saying, "Don't you have any books or anything that you put out that you're not proud of?" And it's like, I have books that I didn't put out that I'm not proud of, right? Uh, but if they got to this phase, that um, I might be repeating myself by saying that I'm proud of it. But if they got to this phase, I believed in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's fair to say, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how how you get how you put that much work and and love and pain and all that shit into something. How do you, how do you not feel at least positive about it on the, <laughs> on the other side, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, uh, there's one that I kind of wish had gotten another level of editorial oversight, but, uh, and that would be flesh trade, but, um, but, you know, at the same time, I'm proud of that book too. I, <laughs> Um, just wish anyone had read it besides you and Marvin. But I'm, 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 I'm not sure that <laughs> anyone else has, but you, but you and Marvin Vernon. I, re- I really like that book. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really good science fiction book, but I just don't think anyone's read it. Um, I, I don't even think most of the people who actually bought it, like went and read it because there's like zero reviews for it online. So oh, shit. But um, for those who are dickhead fans, it's, it's um like it came to me through through dickheads like it's a very pkd style book uh flesh trade which is co-written with ed morris and and i i had a really awesome i don't care though because i had an awesome time writing it with ed yeah it was great mind melton i um learned a lot about collaborating with people so i had an excellent time writing flesh trade with ed and it's funny too because every time i tell people the concept of the book they're like whoa that sounds 
crazy. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, sure. it is also the longest fucking thing I've ever written. And so it is like 400 pages. So like, it isn't something like that, but um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I keep looking it, at yeah. the shelf. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I read it on a backpacking trip through Europe. So, Oh, fun. Any, well, any, anytime I could sit down and, and read, I was reading flesh trade at the time. So that's great. That's yeah. uh, no, that's cool to hear. At least, one of the two of you who read it <laughs> like, <laughs> a really great experience so it's well, been read it's been read around the world <laughs> by me <laughs> yeah well I, re- I, I read so slow i probably finished it in canada so <laughs> yeah yeah i mean um i don't know i mean i almost because it's been barely seen i like ed and i have talked about it a couple times that we feel like it could get published again and like nobody would notice <laughs> like, <laughs> like from a wider publisher, you know? Sure. Like, sure. And um, you know, I, I think the concept, that's the thing is I believe this, that book with the right audience, I think would do really well. For sure. However, there are some things that haven't quite aged so well with that book. I mean, the main character um, is kind of non-binary, but, didn't really know as much about non-binary then as as i do now so i feel like ed and i could put a better polish on that stuff and it would it would be better because we are both people who consider ourselves you know allies and you know definitely support uh people who are non-binary and don't subscribe to absolute gender norms anyways so yeah so, but uh, one of the things about flash trade is the main character basically changes genders based on their their mood. You yeah, know? yeah, and like what they feel like they want to be up to on that particular day. And I don't know if now I would write somebody like kind of existing in within those gender stereotypes. I don't know if that. Well, it's it's you know. still a, it's still a decent metaphor for like gender fluidity, anyway, right? Well, and part of the idea was you always like so it's in storytelling, and I haven't gotten into it this deeply, but my my import the most important thing to me in storytelling is parallels and reversals, right? And so everything's parallels and reversals, and the parallel and reversal of the main character in Flesh Trade is somebody who as the title suggests is kind of um, not that their body is in flux. Right. And right. that their soul and who they are is, is in flux because the main character in that story, Andal is, um, is, has uploaded the, basically the memory of the soul of another person. And so the kind of parallel and reversal of that was to have the villain be somebody who was fluid and was not, you know, and, and had some other kind of body dysmorphia thing kind of going on. It was the idea, whether, whether it worked or not, I don't know. Anyways. um, But, you know, that was the next one, I think after amazing punk stories too. So it was kind of a natural segue, but, but yeah, flush trade. Uh, Not officially. Not officially. Oh, okay. What came before Flesh Trade? Punk Rock Ghost Story. Punk Rock Ghost Story came before Flesh Trade. That's what okay. Google, Google's telling me 2016 for Punk Rock Ghost Story and 2017 for Flesh Trade. Okay. 
Well, but, but the whole parallels and reversals thing tells me that that's the reason why you enjoyed my second novel so much. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Cause there's, there's a bit of that in there. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Your superhero one. Yeah. yeah. Which should have been published forever ago. Um, uh, what's going I have, on world. I haven't, um, se- I haven't, I haven't sent it out anywhere. I don't know. Well, that's I've, on you then. Dad, I, it is. I feel, great. I feel weird about that book for some reason. So I need, I need to reckon with it and I need to go over it again, but I will All be, right. send, I will be sending it out. It's summer in a week and a half. So yeah. I can, I can free up a bit more time then. But I have anyway. one that I have to tell myself to, to get out there too. So, so we'll, maybe I'll encourage, keep encouraging right. each other. Yeah. But, <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, since we were on flesh trade and I think flesh trade in my mind was next because it was the next one I wrote after. Okay, right. Yeah. In that kind of chain of events after amazing punk stories. So, um, and amazing punk stories, I did kind of write like a novel, like, okay. Yeah. I did kind of, although pieces of it were written ahead of time, I did, I had an outline and I basically went story at a time and, and was like, okay, I need to write this one. And I need to write this one. And, um, reunion show is one of the ones that I did outline. Actually, I did outline that story. Okay. Uh, because it was so complicated. Yeah, there's uh, there's a couple in there that I I would almost consider novelettes. Uh, last the, show, uh, last the, show at the Mortuary Collective. Yeah, and, uh, reunion uh, show. And book your own fucking life is yeah. It has a little bit longer. A little longer and has structure. And so I was writing that and frustrated at the same time. So like when I was when I was waiting for Ed, which I didn't have to wait long. Um, cause Ed and I were like very competitive about uh, getting chapters to each other very quickly. <laughs> um, okay. So, which is the, the opposite of uh, the uh, writing collaboration I have right now, where I could wait weeks at a time <laughs> for the, for the very talented writer who's doing very great work with me right now, but takes their time but with Ed, it was, it was a situation of, you know, we were very competitive about like, he turned this chapter back to me over one night and wrote the next one, two days. And so now I, I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta bring it. And, but whenever I was waiting for stories or for chapters from flesh trade, I would work on amazing punk stories. So that's kind of why I tie those books together okay. in my head, but yeah, but flesh trade is the first, like straight up science fiction novel that I published. It wasn't the first that I wrote, but it was the first that I published. The whole idea was that Ed and I were in a writer's group in Portland together um, that Ed organized that he called the Willamette Valley Sorcerers, which was a tribute, of course, to the LA Sorcerers, the Richard Matheson and and by the way, we did have a few visits from an uh, actual member of the LA Sorcerers to our group uh, with Will- William Nolan came a few times. Oh, right. Uh, okay, cool. Captain Pajama Pants. And um, <laughs> so uh, they came more than once to a couple of those meetings, which, you know, for better or for worse. But um, but those flesh trade came out of at the time, at the time I didn't think I knew how or where to publish in the sci-fi community. So the thought of teaming up with somebody and then I just, I really like Ed and I worked a little bit on boot boys together. Like where he, as, as where he was editing me and I, and, and I 
could see that we could work together pretty well. Right. And we did work great together. It's just um, our method of working together required us to be in the same city. And I don't think we could do it. Mm. You know, when we're not, unfortunately, so frustrated is probably going to be it for, for the collaborations. Um, uh, but he's a brilliant writer, very underrated. It's just an amazing short story writer. So, but, but what Ed and I did is we threw around a couple ideas and we had, first idea was for this galaxy spanning space opera that was like just insanely like doom level big. And we spent a wow. couple of weeks kind of working on that, but then we figured out basically that it would take like eight books to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of like, I don't know. And we did really hammer out that story for a while. Then we, um, we actually outlined a wuxia um, oh. fantasy novel together too, based on an outline for a screenplay that I, a wuxia screenplay that I had had for years. And then we kind of tried to pack it out a bit more. And Ed brought all kinds of really cool ideas for expanding that. And that was about like a Muslim Iman bringing the first translated version of the Quran to China and everyone basically trying to kill, kill him. Wow. It was, it was a really interesting concept and I still think it's a pretty cool idea, but yeah, it's just, I don't know if it came together or not, but flesh trade was the one that, that we worked on that. I was like, it was, as we kept coming up with ideas for it, it was just perfect. And it, it's built on a ticking clock yeah, and, 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 and everything. And, and just, um, we just saw the potential and we thought, you know, if we're, and I knew I was moving back to San Diego, so I wasn't sure we'd be able to do another one. So it was the best, most standalone idea that we had. And so we just, we went with it. And so like the last year I was in Portland was, was a lot of it was devoted to flesh trade. And so there's a, there's a, a diner in um, Portland on, on Belmont street called paradox cafe, uh, ironically enough. And paradox has great vegan pancakes and we would sit at the bar at paradox. Generally I would eat pancakes and Ed would drink like eight cups of coffee while we were, <laughs> while we were, while we were hammering out the outline and, and brainstorming the ideas and then what, what we did for, for writing it is we would just pass chapters. Like each one of us would take a turn writing the first pass of a chapter. So if I wrote chapter one, the first pass, then Ed would write chapter two, first pass, and then we'd trade. And so each of us had like eyeballs on each chapter before it was done. And then by the end, it came up with its own voice that, um, I, I don't know. I think I see a little bit more Ed in that book than I, than I do myself. Oh, I okay. see. It's interesting. I see. It's very much my plot and structure, you know, on the surface, but Ed, the world building and, and everything is and the kind of the, the writing of the book is it, it, mm. I, I feel it's, it's a little bit more Ed than me, but there are times where, and what's really cool though, is that by the end of it, there's times where we were writing in each other's voices. Mm. There's, there's a um, kind of an aside towards the end that is so Ed Morris. It's ridiculous. And, um, <laughs> and I wrote it. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but if you were to look at it and you'd say, who wrote that scene, you would definitely say you would think it was Ed, but, um, but it was, uh, it 
I know exactly the part it's towards it's in the last chapter. There's, there's kind of an aside about what the city was like. And, and it's, it's Ed does amazing tangents. And this tangent was very Ed Morris, but I actually, (laughs) I actually, I wrote it and Ed didn't change a word. (laughs) So uh, he was just like, Hey, I like that. It sounds like me. Um, cool. Um, Very cool. But yeah, working with Ed was super fun and it was great. I wish we were in the same city and could do more of it. Um, but uh, so much of that book was just sitting down in the same room and looking at yeah. each other. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I I got that idea too. I think actually, well, I've interviewed both you and Ed, I guess, like together twice yeah. because he he shows up in our portland uh world horror interview yeah we had just finished writing it then oh okay and then i guess we maybe i guess we made the plan to talk talk about it all three of us after i'd had time to read it yeah and i and i guess that summer i went to europe and read it and and then had you both on the show (laughs) yeah 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 that's true yeah we had just finished writing it at world horror so so i'm sure we were (laughs) <laughs> pretty ecstatic about it we were yeah. pretty psyched um cool yeah and i, I mean that yeah I, i'm proud of that book i'm proud of the structure of it and how it all comes together like i i not to because i didn't write it alone so i wrote it with ed so right. i don't feel too bad patting myself too hard on the back but the <laughs> uh the way it all comes together at the end i i i think is pretty pretty incredible and and you know a lot of that has to do with um you know, the, the two minds working together. I believe in collaboration. Quite yeah. Much. So, well, I mean, I, I know you said it's, it's your biggest book, but it still clips by at a good pace. And I think a lot of that is, it is a ticking clock on the story. You get yeah. a lot of incredible wild world building out of the yeah. way very quickly. And immerses the reader right into the story. I think I've mentioned to you before, I'm not so much the sci-fi reader. Right. You know, right. I, I've, I've found very little in sci-fi that I, that I really cling to and enjoy. And a lot of, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not, not going to mention any books. A lot of the, a lot of the times it gets, it's the world building and I just go, ugh, you know, like, please tell me a story. But with flesh trade, it was like, boom off to the races you know and it's like cinematic in a lot of ways i think well you know carries carries you into the story well jeff burke who is my longtime editor at deadite um has said before about my writing style that um i do not fuck around i do not waste space i (laughs) i i'm absolutely if it doesn't need to be there it's not there i don't waste any time um the further you get into and into my work, like, yeah, I just, there, there will never be any asides about trees or like what the leaves look like <laughs> in, in, in my books for the most part. So that's why it was funny because there was a little bit of that in flesh trade. And that's why I'm saying like a lot of that's Ed and, and he's good at it. So like, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. And right, what was right. funny was that I ended up writing a couple of those, just because I was getting in the flow of that particular book, which was the melded, you know, meld melding of our voices. And, yeah. and, you know, there's a, there's a scene in a, 
there's an action scene in flesh trade where the uh where uh anti-grab dance carts there's a big right. scene and and ed will say that that was him writing in my voice because that okay scene was almost entirely like i rewrote ed very little on that you know so he'll, he'll i'm pretty sure he would say the opposite of you know that hmm. that's where he was writing in, in, in my voice I got, yeah. I got to re I got to reread it. I think <laughs> <laughs> might be interesting for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so there was that. And then yeah. Punk rock ghost story was next. Although the, the very first version of punk rock ghost story, the very first draft of it was written um, even before uh, boo boys at the wolf. Right. Okay. To be honest with you. However, well, first... uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to let, let's get into it. Yeah. So the thing with Punk Rock Ghost Story was that uh, in 2016, whenever it came out, mm-hmm. um, or was it 17 that it came uh, out? 16 it came out. 17 was Flesh Trade. Yeah, so 16 when it came out, I basically, a couple months before Punk Rock Ghost Story came out, I rewrote it. I did a page one rewrite, started from scratch and rewrote the wow. whole thing. Really? Yes. Like, so, like, like blank document style? Yep. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there was an entire version of it that I wrote in 2012, maybe. Wow. And I started over because I started to look through it and edit it, and I thought it was garbage. I just okay. thought it was terrible. I knew I was a much better writer, and then I started to kind of like get into it. I was like, well, maybe I'll just edit and I'll just go through it. And then I was like, nope, starting over. So I used the same outline, the exact same outline. Okay. So I had all the same chapter breaks. It had all the same things, but I just, I started page one and I, I busted it out fairly quick. But here's the thing about Punk Rock Ghost Story is that Punk Rock Ghost Story was one that was on the list of the ones Uh, I pitched with Rose. And however, at the time I didn't have a title for it and I just called it the tour and Rose basically just told me, I'll never publish this book with the title of the tour. You have to <laughs> of a better title. Otherwise, there's, you know, whatever. And Jeff and I talked a lot about that book when I wrote the first version. And what we both agreed on is that it needed to be last of the thematic trilogy of yeah. punk books because the whole Blair Witch idea of doing the fake band and pressing the record and doing all that, which, which we did to try and convince people that the band from 1982, that the book is about the fuckers yeah. was real. I knew we needed years yeah. to plant those seeds. I yeah. needed people talking about that band being real for, for years. And so we estimated at the time that we needed at least five years and ended up being seven years from when we first conceived of the book and first talked about it. And somewhere in there, I just, I had the moment where I said, it's got to be called punk rock ghost story. And I sent a message on Facebook to Jeff and I was like punk rock ghost story. And then he was still working with Rose in the office at the time. And he basically, basically wrote back like two minutes later. And he's like, Rose likes it. <laughs> <It's on. laughs> cool. And then, um, but you know, some of the things, um, I mean, there's lots of little nitty gritty things that we did to convince people that the band was real and had been real. We did the fake documentary. We pressed 
actual copies of the record. We recorded yeah. the band with me on vocals. My friend Rat in England did all the music. He does not like American punk rock. He's very British punk rocker. <laughs> so I had to send him copies of the Zero Boys and Circle Jerks and say, try to sound like <laughs> this. And he's like, I don't fucking like this shit. <laughs> and like... <laughs> And then the first version he sent me sounded so good that I was like, dude, this sounds too good. It has to sound like it was recorded in a, fu- in a fucking garage in 1982. So go back, right. and, go back and make it sound shittier. <laughs> and then uh, uh, my friend Garrett record uh, who worked at a studio uh, took us on a Sunday against his boss, you know, probably, uh, violating the rules of the studio he was working in and <laughs> took Anthony and I in on a, on a Sunday afternoon and we recorded all the vocals right in a real studio. And so, and we did a fake live version of one of the songs, which has <laughs> Anthony introducing the songs, like he's the singer of the band. So it wouldn't sound like <laughs> my voice. Well, and I, that- I, w- I was also part of the disinformation campaign. Uh, sort true. of like, sort of like the last part of that. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, we'll get to that in a second. But but part of that of recording the lo- the fake live song is we I actually intentionally cracked my voice some of the times we like act acted out not like you know the night making sure the mic got knocked over. There's right extra <laughs> feedback. The, there's no guitar track below the guitar solo. Uh, just like all intentional things to make it sound like like a live version and so so with punk rock ghost story when we did this you're right it was a different disinformation campaign where we tried to do this whole thing and yes i think the first interview that the interview we did on dread media we acted like the band had been real right we did right whole, right yeah i remember I, I think i mentioned that i had them on like a mixtape or something yeah yeah but, but Which really a lot of, only heard about them sort of thing <laughs> yeah and there's uh, one of my favorite pieces of the dif- disinformation my buddy john shipper shout out to big john uh john made uh an actual visual of a old punk rock mixtape that had the fuckers logo right on. Yeah. yeah he drew that he also drew the art on the, the logo inch. right yeah yeah, yeah. With, the, with the dong coming through the skull <laughs> and everything so like yeah, he put a lot of energy into it. So I got to hand it to my boy, John, for uh, <laughs> like putting a lot of energy into that. And then, and that was the thing is I had a lot of people participate. And and so a lot of the people that were in the documentary are actual like scenester punk people from Indiana, like um, Matt, who played bass in the Belgian Waffles, and John Zepps, who played in, uh, in uh, Ice Nine and Burn It Down. And he was he was in it. And uh, my buddy Garrett, who metal people will know as the guitar player of Coffin Worm, um, right. yeah, he filmed all the interviews in Indiana for me, so I didn't have to fly out to <laughs> Indiana. And a lot of people participated in the the misinformation. My buddy Ryan Love made fake flyers for fuckers shows. It was it was, <laughs> it was really fun. Like we did a lot of lot cool. of fun things to to convince people it was real. And so and there were only like ten or ten or 15 between 10 and 15 people who knew that it was bullshit right you know this all the people we interviewed in the uh documentary and then the people who did individual things like filming and recording and that kind of thing yeah. and it was just a random co-worker of mine who used to play drums in a punk band in the 80s 
who played Dickie, the drummer in the, um, in the documentary, he wasn't an actor or anything. Huh. He's really fucking good in it, but he was just a random coworker of mine. He was an old punk dude. And I was like, Hey, um, you want to pretend to be the drummer of this band? <laughs> and he <laughs> killed it. He was great. Like he Wild. was so good. He was believable. I mean, I did, we did a lot of takes and I did a lot of directing and there were times where like, you know, I would say to him like, Hey, this time get really angry, like be pissed off. Cause like, I'm questioning your story and like, or I'd say like, Hey, there's people who really think you killed Frank, you know? Right. And that's, and for years people have thought that you, that you killed Frank. So get pissed. You know, yeah. get pissed when you're talking. And so, like, if you watch the documentary and you see, like, his performance, like, there were multiple takes. And and um, <laughs> I have a friend who's an actual filmmaker who told me that that, that was, uh, uh, that that performance completely sold him. And that he was, like, that was, like, an actor-worthy performance. And I was like, yep. Cool. And he's just a random coworker who I literally <laughs> grabbed at the end of the day and was like, "Hey, like, will you walk out in the alley and pretend?" To, you know? <laughs> um, Wild. Yeah, but I mean, he was an old punk dude, and we used to talk about the '80s punk scene all the time at work. Yeah. So I knew he knew the scene. So, but a lot Perfect. of the things like he improvised about like Black Flag and the Minutemen and stuff like that, he just came up on his own. So yeah, right on. Yeah. Yeah, but the the actual novel of Punk Rock Ghost Story, you know, the the um of it was always I wanted to do the theme of Punk Rock Ghost Story is um the difference between punk rock before the internet and punk rock after the internet. And the ghost story idea was where you could do the eighties and at the time contemporary punk rock, which is now old school for <laughs> right you know because i conceived of it in 2007 was the first time i thought of the idea right right or 2008 maybe and so the band the actual tour takes place in 2006 so and that's partially because i needed the 20 year timeline or whatever you know anyway right. and also like the more technology you have the less like crazy punk rock touring could be but there's a huge difference between punk rock when everyone hated us and wanted us dead and post Nirvana when it's okay. Yeah. And you can be with the cool kids and have a mohawk and no one bat- bats an eye. You know, there's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. And so the ghost story was the way that I could do that. And that's why the book opens with a quote from Greg from um, Bad Religion saying everybody talks about the 80s like it was this magical time, but like really like people wanted us dead you know yeah and and that's you know that's a huge part of it and then um and then like the pioneer days of punk rock versus like when you had a smartphone and you were on tour like the differences between that and so like i really wanted to explore those themes it is fair to say that punk rock ghost story is the shining in a punk rock tour man that is fair (laughs) yeah yeah that is fair and um and i don't deny it but yeah i i'm fine with that analogy (laughs) (laughs) very cool yeah very cool but um but yeah yeah it was a fun book and the characters you know like the the fake bands and everything again i was trying to go for a kind of authenticity and there it's been cool that people have said like it's clear that agronoff was in touring bands again nope (laughs) (laughs) um 
I had a lot of friends that were in touring bands and I asked a lot of questions and I right. paid attention when they tell stories. I did do merch once or a couple times for different bands. I've never been out for more than two weeks on a tour. So, right. and like, it's the four or five weeks, the, the seven months of a year, that's just insanity. Yeah. You know, yeah. for those tours. And I never did that, but you know, I've talked to a lot of dudes who've done it, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it does, it does come across as genuine. And, and of course there's, you know, there's also this disinformation campaign where people reading it, quite possibly have you know the belief that oh this is a you know a fictionalized account of this band that actually did exist sort of thing and you know and i think you you pointed out that like one of the comments on the documentary on youtube was like fuck yeah i remember those guys they're great <laughs> yeah yeah, but there's also a lot of people calling bullshit and immediately saying, like, there's no way this is real. And, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then there's people who are like, like, think that they've, like, they're, oh, I got you. You know, this is right. bullshit. And it's like, <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia and I don't ever remember, you know, there was never a riot there. And like, you know, okay. But they're definitely, oh. no. Um, and uh, there was an article in the, the Entertainment Weekly in, in Indianapolis. And uh, I, I'm friends with Jonathan who wrote the article, but he wrote the article before he finished reading the book. And so he talked about the band, like they were real. And, okay. um, and I had to apologize, but it's kind of his fault. If he had read the book all the way through, he would have known. So and he and I have laughed about it later because he's like, yeah, I, I didn't finish it. So, but there have been, there was at least three articles that talked about the fuckers. Like they were a real band. Wild. Which is something I'd done in real life before, which was um, part of it was like when you mentioned Mosh into Oblivion, some friends and I did a fake grindcore band that we claimed was from Japan and played a show um, <laughs> in the. And actually, one of the fuckers' songs is actually an originally in uh, Mosh into Oblivion song, right. but I convinced people for years, like, oh no, that was a cover of the fuckers. <laughs> I would tell people all the time because, like, every once in a while, somebody would, somebody who was at the MIO show would say, Oh, the best Mashed Oblivion song was "15 uh, Year Old Punk Kid." And I'd say, "Oh no, no, that was a fucker's cover." And so we actually recorded "15 uh, Year Old Punk Kid" for the for the seven inch, which yeah. was originally written as a Mashed um, Oblivion song, which is basically like a super fast song that says, uh, "I saw you a block away get picked up by your dad. He's fat." <laughs> and that's the whole song. <laughs> and uh it's very like napalm death yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but it was funny because everyone would who was at that show would say that was the best mio song uh, <laughs> so that it kind of happened organically because it's just somebody said that to me at one point said that was the best mio song and i said no it's that, that was a fucker's cover that was a cover they they wrote that yeah and they were like who and i said oh there's this band from the early 80s from indianapolis from greenwood and they you know, their singer disappeared on tour. What? <laughs> <laughs> the whole story. And so there was a lot of people who I kind of sold the disinformation to who were actual friends of mine. So awesome. So well, you were in the inner circle. Dad. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Well, and, uh, and uh, other than some uh, possibly semi nasty YouTube comments. You didn't see any blowback from that because you never went on Oprah, 
right? No, no. <laughs> and if anybody asked me, I never, I'd tell them the truth. Sure. Yeah. So that was the. Policy. It was. It, it was a. It was a marketing campaign. A very elaborate. Or words. Words are hard. Ingenious and fun as as well. I think. And uh, yeah. I w- once you told me what you were doing, I was like, "Fuck yeah, I want in." <laughs> yeah, it was super fun. Yeah. yeah. And that was, you know, it's the whole Blair Witch thing. But, you know, but like I said, if anybody had asked me, I would have told them the truth. Yeah. And, and, but it wouldn't have mattered if the book wasn't good. So I had to make sure. Right. You know, and I do feel like the novel stands on its own as, as a thing. I love the cover. It's absolutely, you know, and, and I do think, I do think the novel works on its own, but like having like, you know, the band, you know, I kind of wish we had had time to record um, People's Uprising, which is the fake band that, like from 2004 that goes on tour right i kind of wish we'd had time to do that but um but uh, i started telling rat the bands that influenced that fake band he was like hell no i'm not doing that because <laughs> i thought that band sounded like from ashes rise or like tragedy or something okay i don't know if you're familiar with those bands but that's that's kind of tragedy i've heard yeah but, but the funny thing is i don't even really like those bands a ton but um you know i mean i like from ashes rise enough i mean they're fun live i've watched both i've seen both those bands and all right i'm more of a metal dude anyways so yeah yeah like me personally i mean i'm a hardcore scene guy but i'm a metal listener so yeah well <laughs> what we didn't actually talk about in amazing punk stories is the metal story and and i i, I don't want to backtrack too much but i fucking loved it Oh, the darkest night of the evil souls. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was fun because I, I think the only thing that I I just wanted to make fun of metal a little bit. Yeah. You know, and then the original idea with that was just um, having because uh, uh, I knew I had this friend Parker who used to play guitar in Undying, and he was like an academic. And he was going to grad school, but he was like filling in guitar for like metal bands on tour, like in between his PhD program. And it was like funny. (laughs) Like, and so that story was kind of inspired by that because I I I thought it'd be funny if there was like this this academic dude who like filled in on drums for like this super evil like (laughs) black metal band would just be hilarious and. (laughs) was a funny concept and but that song was intentionally written to be funny that yeah. was purely satire like, oh for sure yeah. yeah but still loved it i loved it it's i've i've got a, a a black metal goes wrong work in progress that's in in the infancy stages but uh read, reading that again was uh a nice <laughs> uh, a, a nice bit of a kick in the pants to keep going yeah well black metal is 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 hilarious absolutely absolutely and well it's and funny too because somebody said to me once because i said that i liked like early cradle of filth and they were like well that band's a bunch of posers and i'm like <laughs> black metal i'm super okay with them being <laughs> I don't well, want them to be real no for sure my favorite people in black metal are fenris and abeth you know yeah uh, <laughs> so Hey, those we're people, rocking those good band know. shirts. Look at that. See, I, I got bad brains and you got neurosis. Yeah, yeah I was I was gonna mention for the uh, YouTubers. I was yeah, I was gonna mention uh right before we got on that I used to have that shirt, and it's one of the few shirts of mine that has actually disappeared. That that and a motorhead shirt, and 
<laughs> oh yeah, my my dead Kennedy's holly, holiday in Cambodia shirt actually disappeared as well. And I love Dead Kennedy's album. Plastic. Absolutely. No, I'm going to disagree. I'm, I'm Frankenchrist is me. You think I love, records? I think I plastic, love Frankenchrist. Plastic surgery I, disasters. I think all those records are genius, and I actually think that they're incredibly underrated as a band. Yes, incredibly underrated. Even government, though they're they're considered is <laughs> yeah. government flu might be my favorite Dick Kennedy song, but yeah, we're getting on a tangent. So all right, fair. And we've been fair. going for a long time. Yeah, all right, let's bring a fire. Let's move on. Yeah, Ring of Fire, your your Cli-Fi novel. This, uh, Th- this this felt like a departure. I think more than anything of yours that I read, it, th- this felt more like I'm a departure. Proud of. Um, well, and also, and I know it's it, it's very it's very close to your heart, and uh, and uh, you know where where you're at. Yeah, it 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 is a bit of a departure for, in my opinion. I don't know, maybe other people would uh, disagree, but yeah, I I love Ring of Fire. Yeah, Ring of Fire um, is the one that I've sat on the longest. So we had a big wildfire here in San Diego in 2004 that the entire city was like basically surrounded in flames. Yeah. Like, and so that fire inspired this story. And we had been in San Francisco the night before the fire started protesting the beginning of the Iraq war. That's how long wow. ago that the, I thought of this story. So... Well, it wasn't the absolute beginning because, but it was, we were protesting the Iraq war in 2004 right? when this wildfire happened. We had taken gas masks up in case things got crazy at the protest in San Francisco, although it was a very lightweight protest and we didn't need the gas masks, but we had gas masks. And when <laughs> we got back into town, this, the, the, there was this orange midnight that hung over san diego um as as the sun was coming up and it was just, it was snowing ash it was really crazy yeah, yeah. And they shut down the whole city and people were not allowed to go outside but we put on gas masks and went for a bike ride because we're weirdos and um it was the most weird apocalyptic thing i've ever done in my life was riding around the dead city while ash rained from orange midnight so, but I was like, as as a horror writer, I could not have this experience, right? We rode around for a little while on bikes and had to avoid like the police. And the police told us one time, like, hey, get off the streets, go home. But they were kind of laughing that we were wearing gas masks. <laughs> Anyways, like the whole, while I was riding around on my bike at that point, I just had the thought like, man, what if this was a big smoke screen and they were just executing our population? And that was the what if of right. Ring of Fire. And then basically what I wanted to have happen was every environmental fear that I ever had all at once. Like you can't drink the water, you can't breathe the air, there's nowhere to go. Um, so this is my ultimate worst fear ever. <laughs> right. Um, like put into real life. And um, I personally think it's the best thing I've ever written. It's weird because people compare, I've heard it compared to San Andreas and disaster movies, which is not my intention at all. Yeah, Um, There's a lot, I did a lot of research setting up this book ahead of time. And I'm very proud of the characters and one of the things I'm really proud of, and this is the ultimate test to my, like, do not fuck around, do not waste time, do not waste things on the page, is that this is not a particularly long novel. 
but I feel like this is the kind of novel that Robert McCammon or Stephen King would spend 900 pages doing. Because right. It's big in scope for sure. Very big in scope. And it has lots of characters, but it's just North of 300 pages. <laughs> and, and for that reason, I, I feel like there's, it's an ultimate test to my not wanting to waste time or have like a lot of um, wasted space also. Right. But I do feel that the novel is very claustrophobic in the sense that it is all my worst fears kind of combined together it is a product of very specific ability to do research in a way that happened because of luck, which is that at the time our football team in San Diego, which I was a big fan of at the time, the San Diego Chargers were threatening to leave town. And I got involved in the activist campaign to try and keep them here in hindsight. I kind of, well, I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. They, um, the Chargers are owned by the worst owner in sports. He's a complete, <laughs> and the team has gone in the complete tank as we predicted they would if they left their ancestral home of San Diego where the only people who care right. about them live and they have no fan base and they basically destroyed themselves. But what happened was because the city was fighting to keep the team as much as the fans were, I got invited to the mayor's office and I got a chance to, at the end of the meeting with my contact from the mayor's office, say, Hey, can we talk about your disaster plan? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. What's going on with your um, kind of like a weird, just a happenstance of my ability to do research because other things too like if i wanted to i so the water being poisoned was a huge part of it and because of my contact at the mayor's office i could say hey do you have anybody at the water board i should talk to marshall from the mayor's office actually put me in touch with the guy who was their disaster expert for the water board who happened yeah who's (laughs) linked in the book because he happens to be um a horror reader he was a big peter straub guy cool and um so in his interview was really invaluable and then like for example there's a sports radio character and a wildfire fire character fighter character i found a wildfire fighter on youtube (laughs) and basically made friends with him and i recorded a couple interviews with him and and then um the radio dj host character who's who speaks from um who's based on a local radio host named Scott Kaplan. Okay. Um, who hosts um, now he used to host a show for 15 years called Scott and BR, but BR retired. So it's now Kaplan and crew, but Scott Kaplan was a hundred percent the inspiration for the sports radio guy who's on the air while it all goes down. And right. He let me come in and watch them record their, their radio show. And I wouldn't have known Scott if, I hadn't been on his radio show for doing Save Our Bolts interviews. So if I wasn't doing the football activism thing, I, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have known Scott and I wouldn't have been able to, to say, Hey, can I come and watch you on the air record, record your show? So, right. so in that, in that sense, that was, that was super uh, invaluable. And actually uh, people who know Scott have um, one of the best compliments I got on ring of fire was people have told me that I nailed Kaplan, um, <laughs> but they, People who did not, I did not say, they did not read until the end of the acknowledgments that I acknowledged Scott. 
I had based it on him knew immediately that it was Scott Kaplan, like by just like the way he acted and certain things that he said. Huh. Yeah. Kaplan had me on his um, podcast, his side podcast from his radio show. And it was really interesting to talk to him, talk to him about like, Hey, you were a character in my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. When the book came out, he had me on and then, and, and we talked about it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking about trying to have Kaplan here on, he's a very busy guy because he runs like three businesses and he's on the radio in LA and does a podcast daily. So he's a very busy guy, but yeah. um, I've thought about having him on here partially to just to talk about persistence because his radio station went out of business and he kept going podcast. And then eventually radio station came back on the air. It's a long story, but very interesting guy. I mean, he was very fun to write um, about in ring of fire, but cool. Yeah. And I just having the, so there's a character who's a radio DJ. There's a homeless character. There's a guy who works at the mayor's office. There's just, yeah, a couple of different characters. And I think that normally one of the things I'm really proud of with that book is normally with that many, with that cast of characters, you would usually have hundreds and hundreds of pages for an epic end of the world novel. Um, and uh, I'm really proud of how contained it is. Yeah. 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 Again, it's super tight and moves at a good clip too. And I think a year before it came out, we had the same, you know, the sort of pink sky fire ash raining down. Everything is orange, uh, scary uh, experience in my town here as well. And uh, well, my family left town and I stayed and uh, basically Daryl came over and we closed all the windows and closed all the blinds and just started drinking and watching movies <laughs> as we, as we are wont to do. So that's how we wrote out the uh, near apocalypse in town here. Wow. That would have been an interesting way for dread media to end. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I know. Right. <laughs> uh, and I, I had, we had a above ground pool at the time. So I was like, Oh, I got to get out in the pool and cool down. Cause it's so fucking hot in this house. So I did, and I'm in. I'm in the pool, and ash is just falling, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, shit! I should get out of the pool. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be outside." <laughs> well, that book hit home, probably. Definitely, definitely, it did. Definitely. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it hits hit some fears around here too. Yeah, well, that's the... really it. Sh- it should hit fear in everybody because it's not out of the question. It's happening now somewhere in the world. There is a wildfire that is fucking up yeah. every- everybody's lives. So. Yeah, that's the hard one for me as far as I know last year Craig DeLui went through it where he had written American a second American Civil Civil War novel and so it the it was kind of weird like I told you so when the January insurrection came and Right. It's hard for me every time there's like a big wildfire like you know, I don't want to be like, "Hey, remember that book I wrote that <laughs> talked about all this?" but you know, so it's hard. Yeah, because you want to promote it, but at the same time, you're like, yeah, it's scary stuff. But yeah, there's other things going on there too, um, with uh, cancer clusters and the yeah. the water and the there's feral humans and um, which has to do with cli- climate as well because there's there's great fears that as ice that has been frozen for hundreds of thousands of years starts to melt like what kind of bacteria are we unleashing yeah <laughs> that's all there in ring of fire so like <laughs> i definitely feel like of all if if 
someone was only going to read one of my books that that would be or they wanted to know where to start i right i would tell them ring of fire now you say it's a departure but i don't know it's the most john shirley influenced obviously yeah and kind of the one that's closest to like what i've wanted to do with horror cool and I'm trying to kind of move myself a little bit more towards sci-fi, but in the future, but as far as horror goes, I think it's the most pure of my horror novels. And by the way, the Shirley influence caused joked with him that there's a something that I do in that book that I specifically, because I knew the book was very John Shirley influenced. I did something in the novel that he would never do. <laughs> specifically because i was like this is something that john would never in a million years um do in a a story Hmm. um but you gotta kind of have to read it but um (laughs) to to see what it is and just know that he despised the ending of the mist okay so of the of the movie okay yeah that's that's your hint right Um, okay and it was the fact that he despised the ending of the mist so much is, was was one of the things that that inspired that. So that that's your that's, that's the hint there. That's interesting because I kind of love the ending of that movie. That movie, but yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, good. You. I like the ending. I like All the right, ending. your latest published novel, mm-hmm. uh, one of your greatest titles. <laughs> when you when you told me that's what this was goddamn killing machines uh so where where did this start where so, did the idea for this come from killing machines was originally written in 2010 wow okay um the original version of it uh much like punk rock Ghost story it got heavily heavily overhauled however um if i ever get the chance to write books two and three i feel like they will be like light years ahead and terms of my evolution as a storyteller and what i can do and it was kind of conceived as a trilogy and i believe it will happen for various reasons goddamn killing machines happened originally partially because it's funny because i've talked about how rose is a big believer in titles because when you're scrolling amazon a lot of times the only thing you'll see about a book is the title yeah so that's one of the reasons why she put such a premium on titles i love world war ii men on a mission or just mission it shouldn't just be men but mission movies like guns of navarone or ice station zebra or where eagles dare like i love those old school mission movies that now are mostly remembered for inspiring and glorious bastards than anything and uh, (laughs) sure sure but I love those types of movies. Um, the Dirty Dozen being one of those, of course. And yeah. um, somewhere along the way, I remember I had been thinking that I wanted to write about a planet or a moon that had a river that was 11 times the length of the Amazon. That was just in my head, 11 times longer was the first thing that I <laughs> thought of. And so I started building out this moon that a lot of Killing Machines takes place um, between a binary stars of Sirius A and B, which are real stars. And if you're if you're a real nerd for it, I tried to get all the science and numbers correct for Killing <laughs> Machines as far as like travel time at 87% the speed of light, et cetera, et cetera. Because I'm a space nerd. And um, 
anyways, so I thought a lot about this planet and then kind of made the story up backwards from that because I had the idea that, well, I'd love to see a sci-fi version of the Dirty Dozen. And if you're thinking about the Dirty Dozen, you got to have a crazy name for their squad. Right. <laughs> and so the coming up with the name, the goddamn killing machines, like it just made me laugh. I kind of pictured them like one of them having um, goddamn killing machines written on their helmets. Right. Right. And I love military sci-fi, your Starship Troopers, your Old Men's War, your, you know, I, I like a lot of those, um, of those military sci-fi tropey novels too. So I thought there were somewhere to go there, but I didn't want to do like the, you know, become a citizen and like do all that. So <laughs> right, I knew I wanted to do the Merc thing. And then I decided that I would just go full into the dirty dozen thing with them being criminals and war criminals. And that's just kind of where I built it all out from, from, from that. And then the cool thing about killing machines is that once I had like the basic characters and all that um, years, I mean, I always kind of saw it as a trilogy, but once, once clash books got involved, because Christoph said, you know, had communicated to a couple of us that he really wanted to do some sci-fi books. And so I, I told him like that I had written this and didn't know where to publish it because it wasn't long enough for a mainstream sci-fi publisher because um, they want exactly 325 pages like to the team these huh. days or longer. And with military sci-fi, you kind of always have to have a series because that's the thing is I don't think Killing Machines has the readership that it could yet because um, there are some military sci-fi readers who won't read anything until there's like a series of three or more at least. Right, right. They 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 want a series. I kind of in the back of my head always had this kind of dark trilogy, this kind of reversal of the hero's journey with these these war criminals. And I'm not going to go into because there's a lot of spoilers involved in where it goes. Um, because I wrote book one to have an ending that could work if if i never get to write books two or three but all the seeds for the trilogy are in the book um so it's up to you folks out there to help me sell this thing um (laughs) so i can can do the rest of the trilogy because it goes into I, i don't know i mean i have all the seeds of the trilogy they're all there i have what's really makes me want to finish the trilogy more than anything is that when I wrote killing machines, I hadn't, we hadn't done dickheads. Right. I think my knowledge of science fiction has increased a hundredfold since, since we started doing dickheads. And I think that the book two and book three of the trilogy could be like really incredible because I, I've, I've got sci-fi up my sleeve, but um, the last couple of years I've been working on uh, two different books that are, have not found homes yet because I, I haven't been some, I've been trying Anthony and I wrote a novel called nightmare city. You've read the screenplays, right? Yeah. The original basis of and nightmare city. We're trying very hard to go with mainstream, like kind of New York publishers and, um, I'm starting to feel like we need to give up on that with Nightmare City because we've spent two years shopping it. And I think 
the problem is, which we've pitched this book, Nightmare City, as The Wire, if Philip K. Dick and Clyde Barker were on the writing staff. <laughs> right, right. Some of the hot button issues that the book deals with, with race and class and ghettoization and things like that, some agents and publishers are a little afraid to touch. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll see because I definitely think Nightmare City is the best thing I've ever written. And unfortunately, wow. very few people have read it because of, uh, um, you know, we came close with an agent, but eventually said that he couldn't live in that book for long enough to work on it. And hmm. he, okay. he straight up, he just was like, I can't handle the subject matter. It was right around the time that the George Floyd thing ha- happened and, Right. You know, it was, it was a bit much. And then um, during the pandemic, I also, I wrote a science fiction novel called Not Alone that um, Larry from the Dickheads podcast and I kind of conceived together, but um, I'm right. I wrote the novel by myself, but Larry and I kind of came up with the concept together, a few TV scripts based on the idea together. And then, um, but I'm kind of adapting them into a novel. Cool. That is as epic a sci-fi as I can imagine. Let's just put it that way. It starts with um, kind of a dumb rock and space novel like Rendezvous with Rama. And I have five books planned. And if I ever get to write to book five, it's total space opera by the end. And um, it's like as epic as I could possibly get. And that's called Not Alone the first novels finished and that is actually the longest novel I've written longer than flesh trade, but it's 138,000 words at this point. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's a very, very epic thing, but it's finished. And I've been, Anthony and I've been working on some screenplays and some other stuff like that. So that's what I got going on. But, you know, I think we've almost gotten to the end here, but yeah. I know this is going to be long. If anybody made it this far, <laughs> you're a serious fucking trooper. I'm sure yeah. you did it in segments. You did not listen straight through. Well, there's there's also another book that you've written that you didn't just mention. However, if you don't want to talk about it, it's one that I've read. Uh, which one's that? Um, well, the last the last book that you sent me. You you've said oh. the t- you've said the title in this interview already part of a a trilogy where kids hang out oh yeah yeah people's (laughs) park yeah yeah i did write yeah i haven't found a home for that one yet too yeah i did write a novel called you're right it's a very philip k dick influenced coming of age sci-fi novel i've been kind of saying that stranger things is a sci-fi show that's set in the 80s in indiana written by people who weren't even alive in the 80s let alone (laughs) right right this is like it's more punk rock and skateboards and coming of age but um people's park is influenced by the uh by the park that i hung out in when i was a kid um people's park was not just like the punk rockers and weird uh, those kinds of weirdos but it was also like um people with mental health challenges and hippies and and in any case um yeah, I'm very proud of that book. I just don't I just don't know who, who would publish it. I I don't know where to go with it, um, right. to be honest it, with you. It'll find a home. It's uh it's up there amongst my favorite of the stuff that you've ever written. So Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm very proud of that book. It's I definitely think it's the weirdest thing I've ever written. So Yeah. Um and it's very PKD, but not in an obvious way. So All right. uh, there's no like 
paranoia am i human like who's hunting me down and <laughs> right 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 <laughs> yeah. well I, I i guess on that note yeah hopefully 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 it finds a home because the thing is it's a weird book because it's it's kind of horror it's kind of sci-fi but it's like just weird i i yeah i don't know where it goes i don't know where it goes <laughs> That's why it hasn't been published yet, because I really honestly don't even know where to start. Um, okay. All right. Someone, tried... someone will publish it. Someone will do it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I put some feelers out there. We'll see. Hopefully soon. So, cool. anywho. All right, Des, but I, I really appreciate it turning the tables. This was very long, and you've. Oh, it's all right portion of your afternoon. So, I. I no, I, I, had a, I had a great time. Thank you for asking me to take the reins on your podcast <laughs> very weird but well, you've been on postcards before this is not your first time and shall not be the last so you know oh right <laughs> yeah of course of course the top top horror novel episode yeah yeah, yeah i was I like guess. i've been on before yes of course i have <laughs> yes you have all right so uh i guess i will sign off and just say thanks for listening if anybody uh you know made it this far and um for people who have I, anybody who's read my work i just really appreciate that i, and I, I was just gonna add go buy david's fucking books yeah thank you <laughs> what he said <laughs> all right man thank you all right